0: Study Buddies, your one stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Hello. This month, we're reading Adrian Hahn. Uh, I, gotta, I gotta pull the, oh, You've been played. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to flip the cover over. You've been played. I, I keep getting this uh, title confused with get played. Oh, um, yeah. Of course, uh, Heather and Campbell, uh, Matt Apodaca, and Nick Weiger's podcast, <laughs> where they talk about video games. Mm-hmm. Um, You've been played. How corporations, governments, and schools use games to control us all. It's by Adrian Hahn. This is a uh, different kind of book than we would normally do on the show. We've only done a couple of these, and it's it's a basically like a popular nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. You know, It's written so that if you want to know big structural blah blah what's going on about an idea then you could pick it up this one's for gamification that's what the the book is about um but you know this is not what we normally do which is like a kind of a disciplinary academic book mm-hmm. getting down in the weeds you know if there is a set of assumptions or disciplinary ideas that guide this it's probably neuroscience we can we'll talk about that uh when we're getting into or, or neuropsychology maybe mm-hmm. Um, somewhere in between those two things. And uh, the author is is quite different. Adrian Hahn is the CEO and founder of game developer Six to Start, the co-creator of Zombies Run, and a columnist for Edge magazine. He previously studied neuroscience at the University of Cambridge, the University of Oxford, and the University of California, San Diego. I'm just reading the blurb on the back of (laughs) of the book. The uh, so yeah, this is a uh part of what we're calling the summer of agency. It's almost over. Next month, we'll be reading um another book, <laughs> uh, <laughs> virtual reality.
1: Is that Maybe. what it's called?
0: Virtual narrative, something like that. Anyway, we'll talk about it at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, we did Bettina Bodie's book, Video Games and Agency, and that was hey, what is agency and how do game developers design for it mm-hmm. to make you have the feeling of agency? Then we read, uh, wins. Um, what is it called? Games and agency. Yeah. Or just like
1: games on games.
0: Yeah. Whatever it is. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm having such a bad time with titles today, but, uh, well, we read that and it argues that the very fundament of games, right? The, the, the a coin of the realm <laughs> of games is agency itself and a wrangling with agency and uh uh and citations of living uh uh Twitter activated philosophers. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Uh as well. But uh but we did that. The and now uh we are reading a haters book, Michael. <laughs> the haters a book guide. for hate the Haters Guide to Game, a book for haters. <laughs> Not David haters, but just haters of gamification. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Adrian Hahn is a game designer and developer um, and who works in a field that is overrun with gamification. Mm-hmm. And this is a book about all the naughty things that gamification does to us. And I I pitched this as being part of the Summer of Agency because this is like the dark side of agency, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there can only be two people at any given time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a, a uh, an apprentice must kill the master, mm-hmm. and, and so and so forth. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's and agency. I'm, that's right. I'm bottoming out on the bit here. <laughs> uh, but uh, but no, yeah, we thought it would be important to put in a. Critical book here, right? And certainly this is a fairly newer book and also a very popular book. I've heard a lot of chatter about it, and I wanted to read it. Selfishly, I wanted to read it, so uh wanted to put it on the show here. And it is the Hater's Book. Like, it it succeeds in being the Hater's Book for gamification. Um, weirdly enough, it's kind of hard to find a lot of Hater's Books on game- gamification.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so filling the the market gap here.
0: That's right. There was a market yeah. niche. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Adrian Hahn has done it. Um, you, you read this book before, engaged with any of this, you know, about Adrian Hahn, any, what? What's your, your mode of access? Here?
1: So I've never touched this book before. I uh, uh, had heard of Adrian Hahn, but haven't played any of his games or anything like that. Uh, I have done some academic work on gamification in uh, an educational context, right? In particular, like course design and online course design. So I'm familiar with Hmm. uh, some of the stuff uh, that is talked about here. And in particular, Hmm. some of the uh, failings and shortfalls that he discusses. Uh, And the other thing that I think is really fascinating about this book is... There, there are just kind of like chunks of it or like, you know, pretty, pretty big segments that are like, oh, yeah, this is like stuff that we've talked about in the context of some other book on this podcast. Like there, there's a real kind of like, I don't know, uh, uh, boss rush here where it's like, oh, yeah, this is like some stuff that Krogan talks about in gameplay mode. This is Games of Empire, uh, right. this, that and the other. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, I mean, I think that's kind of also part of the
0: uh, why there doesn't have to be a a hater's book on gamification necessarily or why there hasn't really been a major one before is I think that and Han walks us through this too, right? Like when you start pushing on any part of gamification, there's there's not a lot of there there. Uh huh. Yes, there's a lot of supposition. There's a lot of corporate money, right? There's a lot of investment in these ideas, hopefully working. There's a lot of uh, faith in the product. But you know i've I've uh, read the gamification books and chased down the the science uh, 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 citations and read the studies. and I, I it's actually very hard to, say, read a book of a proponent of gamification and follow the citational apparatus and actually find studies that prove the point that's being made. It is actually, uh, deeply frustrating mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to to know that um, you know these book, many of these books, and I've read several books on gamification um, because it is a, a personal interest of mine of being a hater. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, you read them and you just you go through the work of well, how does this actually work? And then you find out that either uh, quite often studies will be published and they will uh, be presented a certain way in the media. And then uh, within the journal, it, then then people who are writing books on gamification just pull that. They pull the headline in the write up, and rather than read the study, mm-hmm. when often the headline or the write up misunderstood the study, or they are uh, studies of like twenty one people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, I don't know how what the scalar capacity, and it'll be like you know twenty one. Uh, Finnish high
1: school students.
0: <laughs> yes. And it's like, I don't know if that necessarily applies to all of humanity, right? Yeah, he uh, even
1: talks about one of those in this book, doesn't yes. he? Where he's oh, like, yeah. here's like this one like positive study. It uh, applies to 19 people.
0: <laughs> yes, so uh, yeah, I think it actually happens a couple of times in this book, and also Han does a thing that uh, I, you know, a thing that I've said many times uh, in my life, although probably not on this podcast because it hasn't come up, but um, you know, famously within Jane McGonigal's work, uh, Reality is Broken in particular, uh, there are these, uh, she she likes to use her own work as like uh, uh, positive examples uh-huh. and, and productive examples, which is perfectly fine. Of course you would. Uh, Han does the same thing. Um, and, uh, but then you like go and look at how many people actually signed up for those games, mm-hmm. right? And they are, it's an extremely small sample group, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, um, the smallest ones are a few hundred and the largest ones are somewhere around 10,000, right? Uh, Han actually run, runs the numbers of all of those for us, um, just so we can know, uh, that kind of stuff. So it, I would say it's the haters' book of gamification, but also one that has a pretty even handed, um, perspective on gamification adrian Hahn clearly wants there to be some sort of pro-social capacity for games mm-hmm. you yeah. know the, the title um, of the book is not against gamification right right like that's right. yeah it's you've been played mm-hmm. which i i just i in my heart of hearts i think is not a good title <laughs> um but uh i understand why you would go with it but it's just not for me um, but yeah, and then the book actually cashes out in the last couple chapters, maybe the last three chapters, right? Um, mm-hmm. no, I, maybe the last, uh, like eight, nine, ten. uh, some like ideas of what to do. Mm-hmm. Like if we live in a world of gamification where there is such a high interest and desire for gamification to do something, then what do we do with it? And, um, you know, we can see where we f- feel about that at the end, but it's at least a positive outlook, right? Mm -hmm. Even if maybe I personally am not uh, entirely on board.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Other stuff we want to talk about here at the top? Is there much? I mean, I don't think so. And I also think that um, in general, so we we often talk uh, on this show about like the structure of the book or its method uh, uh, and how that impacts how we're going to break it up and talk about it. Because this is a popular press book, I think, uh, that doesn't mean we can't have those discussions, but I don't think, uh, we need to, like, get as, uh, deep into, like, disciplinarity here, uh, Mm -hmm. because basically this book, uh, is an introduction in ten chapters, uh, each of the chapters is Han looking at some segment of contemporary life and uh, either either gamification is already explicitly being talked about there, in which case he's kind of like running through the history of like, how did this thing come to be gamified? How was gamification conceived? How did it enter into the arena? Whatever. Um, And then what are its outputs? What are some of its consequences? Uh, And in other chapters, it's taking things that we might not think of uh, in the first blush as gamification. Uh, but then connecting some dots and showing how like the logic that underlies gamification is nevertheless being deployed here. Um, mm-hmm. and m- mainly, uh, with the exception of a couple chapters, right? The one, for instance, where he talks about, uh, his own work pretty extensively and, uh, uh how to do gamification in a way that's not like just, uh, uh, you know, to the wall misery for everyone, uh apart from things like that, it's mainly like, here's this segment of life. Here's how gamification is there. Uh, and here are, ha- here are all the bad things that's being used to like justify or implement or rationalize. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then as you say, near the end, some like, again, turning back to here, here are like the, the ways that this could not be so bad. Right. If we like made these choices or did things in this way, it might not be so bad, but there is a specific kind of uh philosophy of gamification or outlook that Han is very much trying to bring to our attention and uh, show how widely disseminated it is within society as a a kind of call to action, right? A a way of getting, Mm -hmm. I think your average reader to be like, Oh yeah, like this does suck. And this is kind of everywhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In terms of like, uh, you know, what you were saying a minute ago about maybe, um, style or kind of disciplinary concern, you know, you're right. It doesn't, it's on an academic book, so it doesn't have to like jump through all these weird additional hoops. Mm-hmm. You know, it can just communicate to human beings, which is wild. Um, but, but in terms of the broader structure, it's 10 chapters and they are each kind of 20 ish pages And they are each a uh, kind of a long read, deep dive into a particular aspect of gamification, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But what's notable about that is that Adrian Hahn um, began a degree in what, neuroscience? Um, Yeah. Yeah, neuroscience on on the back of the thing. Uh, Began a PhD or a DPhil, I guess, Um, in uh, which I guess is the same thing, literally. (laughs) It's what
1: you, yeah, it's what your PhD (laughs) is when you get it from like Oxbridge or whatever.
0: Right, right, yeah, they just had, they say it differently. But we're all doctors. We're all doctors of philosophy here, right? <laughs> right. Right, we're all, yeah. Um but uh he entered that program and then quit at some point during it uh to go and do game design, which is like uh, good. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> on like making good decisions for yourself. Um but uh but but that does um put some I don't know, conceptual um, uh, bumpers on the whole project mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Uh, for Han, everything is kind of bottoming out in psychology, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the tool that that he brings to bear on lots of this, right? So reading very carefully through some studies that, you know, uh, say, for example, this it opens with a discussion of Skinner boxes and B.F. Skinner and behaviorism. Right. And Han is like, look, within the field that I studied in, behaviorism is completely debunked (laughs) um and so if that is the case then what what the hell is going on here right Mm -hmm. um and against which you have to measure the fact that well they do work right like the straight skinner box of of uh the loot box works great so you know what do you do with that um but but quite often um what Han is doing is we'll, we'll take these ideas and then put them up against neuroscience or his expertise in neuroscience and uh, in psychology in order to either verify or kind of debunk claims. Um, and I do think there are some places where that... Um, that produces a different effect than I than, than I would produce, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because like Han, for example, here, like never has a theory of ideology, uh-huh, right? right. Um, and not even necessarily in those terms, right? You know, the ideology classically is the, uh, the imaginary relation we have to real relations, right? Mm-hmm. It's the way we think the world, um, uh, even if that is contradictory to how it is. And uh, Han... Doesn't doesn't really engage with the fact, and we'll talk about that. There's a chapter on QAnon in particular where this is really apparent to me. Han is unwilling to engage with like a full theory of basically competing realities. You know, like almost a uh, uh, like a Francois Lyotardian differend, mm-hmm. right? The the differend is just when you know you Michael can look at the same um, uh, data that I look at, right? We can all we can look at the same information in the world. And due to uh, kind of ideological differences or different conceptions of the world, come to radically different conclusions about what that evidence
1: means. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a really classic and useful kind of big French theory term. Right. It's like when Um, you look at the dress and you see it as blue and I look and I see it as white. Right, exactly. Uh,
0: except uh, Leotard was doing that in order to figure out what the hell was going on with Holocaust deniers mm-hmm. in, in the 1960s and 70s, right? Yeah. But yeah, basically, weirdly enough, yes, also the thing that you said, <laughs> yeah. right? These these two things are, are both within that, that, that big thing. And in the dress example, right, we can uh, both come up with very compelling evidence for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can come up with the same evidence, not just I see it this way and you see it this way, but look, I'm going to take a screenshot of it and compare it to this other image. They're the same image. Look at this other thing, then. It's definitely purple or blue or whatever. So they're, then, therefore, it must be blue, right? Right. Um, uh, we can create an entire universe of uh, coherence, right, out of information that is um, interpreted perhaps incorrectly to the mainstream. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Han doesn't really have a Han has a theory of mechanic here. Right. Of what is the process Mm -hmm. that people undergo and how does it impact them? Han doesn't ever really have a theory of what is the um, creation of worldview. Um, And if I think that there's an interesting intervention to make with this book or a place where we can poke at it a little bit, it's almost like the James S. Hans level. Right. Of um well what if there's actually more fundamental processes at play and gamifications and intervention within them a kind of techniques within them Mm -hmm. and not uh merely like a um you know the 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 evil genie who's appeared to like um uh you know make you believe the wrong things right or or have perverse desires or whatever yeah all right that's enough genie talk michael okay gosh Mm -hmm. um I know you're trying. I know I've opened the door.
1: Yeah, I was just getting ready to go long on the Will Smith performance and the Guy Richie Aladdin. But I'll, I'll hold Guy it off Ritchie? for now. Guy
0: Ritchie directed that Aladdin? He
1: did. It was. It's weird. Anyway. Anyway. Hey, the rise of gamification. Yeah. It's the first chapter. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's an introduction. Oh, actually. Yeah. Yeah. There's an introduction first. Sorry. I mean, the introduction basically just like lays out the idea of gamification and then describes in brief what all of the following chapters are going to be about.
0: Uh, starts with a couple of ep- epigraphs huh
1: yeah it does uh, there's a lot of Foucault in
0: this book there is a lot of Foucault in this book I don't think I agree with Adrian Hahn about what Foucault is saying
1: <laughs> I mean you want to talk about that or no well
0: no uh, I don't yet because we'll talk about that when we get to the very end Um Because Foucault, I think, like at the core, if there's a claim that we can say about Foucault that is uh, perhaps uncontroversial, it is that uh, he is an anti-humanist. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, that probably is very uh, controversial, but um, statement. Foucault is an anti-humanist. Yes, uh, humanist. Right. Mm -hmm. There. Uh. You know. Um. There is a. We'll talk about when we get there. But I think at the end of the day, Han is a humanist, Uh uh, and so there is a mm, friction between the way that Foucault is used across this book and the way and where Han wants to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that at the end, but there's a whole chapter kind of dedicated to playing that out, which is really great. But yes, there's a huge amount of Foucault here. Yeah. um, And uh, that's interesting, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so these epigraphs that we start with um, chapter one, uh, Rise of gamification, both of them are, one's from Foucault. One is from uh, John Locke. Uh, notably to me, both of these have to do with education and schooling. Uh, From Foucault, it's the part in Discipline and Punish where he's talking about uh, LaSalle's The Conduct of Christian Schools and how do you kind of like come up with a scheme of uh, reward and punishment to uh, uh, incentivize the students to learn correctly, right? Or like to, you know, be docile, what have you. Um, And then the quote from Locke is uh, Locke saying, well, I'll just go, it get shorter, so I'll just read it. I have always had a fancy that learning by, might be made a play and recreation to children, and that they might be brought to desire to be taught. Uh, so that's kind of how we set up gamification, because in its uh, fundamentals, I think, this is uh, maybe what most people think about it, but it's definitely like where Han sees gamification happening, uh, at at the very least as a buzzword where you take a thing that people typically don't like to do, or that it's a, a literal chore to do. So, you know, uh, students in education or maybe like cleaning the house or whatever, uh, in Han's own work, uh, going for your daily run, um, take this thing that can be kind of a chore. And then, uh, in some way. Uh, layering the aesthetics of games atop it. Uh, and that is actually Han's, like, sort of basic definition of what gamification is, right? It's taking a quote-unquote normal activity uh, and then applying game mechanics or structures and aesthetics to it in in some fashion or another. Uh, so what is interesting to me about both of these, starting with education, um, if anyone's listened to, like, all of this show uh, at this point, you've heard me probably talk at length about my interest in the history of education— Uh, and one of the things that is constantly, constantly coming up, like people are saying it to this day, uh, but it. Uh, you know, I'm most interested in when people start talking about this in like the 14 and 1500s is wouldn't it be awesome if we could make our students like to learn that if learning didn't feel like learning, but felt more like play, like this is the impetus for basically everything that has happened in education ever for, I mean, in my, uh, you know, knowledge base, uh, like the past 600 years, like this has been a, uh, you know, floating dragon that people have been chasing, Uh, And I think it's, well, uh, speaking from my own vantage point here, right? uh, It is notable then that gamification is kind of just like the next evolution in this thing that people have been saying for centuries. What if we could take this thing that's not fun and make it fun by making it look fun or seem fun or something like that? Mm -hmm. To give you a structure to make it fun,
0: even if it is not inherently fun. Yes. Yeah,
1: I think that's right. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So then Han talks about uh, one of the other things that uh, this chapter is doing then is just sort of like sketching the foundations of gamification. Like, how is it that gamification could become a thing that could... Uh, uh, spread into so many corners of life. Well, uh, it's got a material and technological basis. Uh, the the rise of the internet, uh, computers getting smaller or like more proliferation. Uh, smartphones especially. The ways that smartphones can, uh, do sort of personalized metrics, track various bits of data. The quantified self movement that he uh, uh dates to two thousand seven. Incidentally, I think the first use of gamification comes up in. Is it like the 70s or something?
0: Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 70s, 80s. I don't have it. The page yeah.
1: marked here, but but yeah, it, it's it's uh, very
0: old. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and what what he really does across this opening uh, introduction is to be like, hey, this idea is very old. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not just like the term gamification, but the notion, right? You know, going back to Locke, even right. right. The notion that uh, one could bend. Uh, obligation toward play Mm -hmm. uh, is a fantasy that people have had for a long time. And people have done it for a long time. Right. He also unites it up with badges and, um, you know, uh, awards, things like that. Um, Doesn't talk about here. You know, it's always a fascinating example and, you know, you can't, obviously you can't um, uh, include everything, but you know, there's a a famous piece in game studies, not the journal, but within the field of game studies uh, by Mark Nelson. Uh, Looking at the Soviet use of medals and badges, Mm -hmm. um, which is like one of the very clear uh, predecessors for contemporary gamification that we have. Uh, And so basically just kind of jumping around from location to location uh, to identify, well, where have people used like very basic systems of reward um, and um, uh, in compliance, you know, reward for compliance, essentially, um, uh, to then compel behavior. Mm-hmm. Um and then does the thing that you're talking about here too, right? Which is to say, uh, that had to be kind of slapdash and broader and sometimes voluntary, right? You know, hard to get all these things to fit under one roof until the smartphone which kind of knocks down the doors of um, gamification because of ubiquity right yep. you can access your, your smartphone anywhere it's a fairly complicated computer um, and it can track lots of different data points in order to do that so it, you know the floodgates open uh, with the advent of the smartphone and the technologies of um, that that it that it affords for us mm-hmm everyone on the internet now (laughs) this is also where um where he gets into his kind of background in psychology um in this piece uh and uh
1: talks about barack obama yeah well obama comes (laughs) up a
0: couple times here yeah obama gets a couple pieces of chapters but that uh that obama's campaign you know um if you Know anything about American elections and the history of American elections? Uh, Obama's oh, uh, the, the campaign for the 08 election or 07? Mm-hmm. Le- no, yeah, yeah, 08, it was the 08 election. 08 yeah. election, I don't know why I was thinking 07. For the 08 uh election, was um, his massive capability of data analysis, you mm-hmm. know, they had like basically the internet team, yeah, um, and that was the big uh, demarcator. Han actually. B- Brings that into conversation with gamification that the, the Obama campaign partially motivated its user base through the, the explicit use of gamification, which is pretty interesting yeah. to me.
1: Yeah, they're like leaderboards and things. Mm
2: hmm.
0: Um, this is also the place where Han uh, basically says there was a golden age of gamification and now the kind of afterlife of, of gamification. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the early 2000s, it explodes and becomes a dominant term across lots of different industries. And as of the moment we live in right now, it kind of like disappeared in the 2010s where it kind of, um, um, I don't know, submerged. And now it's just kind of, got tendrils everywhere yeah. you know what i mean like gamification is everywhere but it is not the kind of predominant celebrated term that it once was where it's like wow we gee whiz gamification is here but people are just using those methods in lots of different ways um and perhaps not evangelizing about them so much you remember tech evangelism yeah you that
1: yeah uh-huh yeah so he talks about like he says in the the 2000s uh there was a movement that he calls utopian gamification which i mean we've yeah, talked really. about this on other shows um <laughs> uh maybe even this show i think we talked about it on indie game the movie uh, on mm-hmm. on this series yeah, was yeah. maybe the most recent one uh but yeah the tech evangelism of the 2000s where it was really just yeah like gamification is going to solve these problems like we all we have to do is put a computer in in the workflow here somewhere, let the computer put some badges or fun little progress bars on things uh, and it's all gonna be gravy,
0: yeah, he cites specifically two kind of major speeches, one Jesse Shell, maybe talking at games for change i don't I don't remember where Shell is talking. Um, and then Jane McGonigal's Ted talk uh, that kind of goes into reality is broken or ties in with that. And those two things mean like extremely uh, publicly um, influential high watermarks for gamification. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, everyone kind of looking at those across lots of different industries and saying, yes, exactly what you just said. You know, let's if we slap some badges on it and we can incentivize behavior through that. Um, and create kind of a point system, you know, mechanism for it. Then, then, therefore, we can change the world, mm-hmm. right? You know, McGonagall, in reality, is broken. Uh, notably, says, you know, we've spent we've spent collectively more than a billion hours killing enemies in Halo. What if we did that for good? Mm-hmm. And it's like I don't. I, I've uh, been deeply critical of that since I read that on the page. Goes into this. I really like this kind of two pages here
1: on. Who is the person? Morgan Ames. Yes, the charismatic technology thing.
0: Yeah, Morgan Ames has this book called "The Charisma Machine: The Life, Death, and Legacy of One Laptop per Child," and uh, calls this has this language language of something being a charismatic technology, right? One that is appealing on its surface in, in a kind of inherent way or a rhetorical way that then. Um, becomes maybe insidious because of that right its shortcomings mm-hmm. are ignored because it's so charismatic and gamification Han kind of borrows that and says look that's the definition of, of gamification it is a charismatic technology the rhetoric of it is very powerful by the way as someone who works in comm studies uh, the word rhetoric is notoriously absent from most of this book <laughs> <laughs> and, and it would be interesting to think about this book really about a rhetoric of of play mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, you know, any actual system of design. Uh, but yeah, I really like that. It sounds like you were keen into that. You, did you like this term too? Yeah,
1: the idea of charismatic technology. I mean, it's really good because, uh, and this is, I'll just read uh, Ames's definition, which is quoted by Han. <clears throat> it's from page 26, if you happen to have a copy. Uh, a charismatic technology derives its power experientially and symbolically through the possibility or promise of action. Uh, what is it? yeah, Wait, hold on, does that make sense? Yes, uh, its power experientially and symbolically through the possibility or promise of action. What is important is not what the object is, but how it invokes the imagination through what it promises to do. The material form of a charismatic technology may be part of this, but is less important than a technology's ideological commitments, its charismatic promises. This means that a charismatic technology does not even need to be present or possessed to have effects. And boy, howdy. some sort of metaverse. <laughs> yeah, right. Are we not living in an age of charismatic technologies?
0: Right. And, you know, uh, and notably, the word imagination is is, is uh, used here. I would definitely call that speculation, mm-hmm. right? You know, what is happening here is that it harnesses the, the beauty and wonder of human speculation and wields it like a weapon against us, mm-hmm. which is what's uh, great. That's what all the best technologies do. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think this is really good. I think I actually, I mean, this, this does show up throughout the book, but, uh, I think this could have been an even heavier claim made, you know, mm-hmm. this could be like a 10 pound hammer, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we kind of walk through it. Um, and, uh, that's kind of the, the chapter one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, you know, I do want, let me, let me read this. This is on page 30. Okay. Lately, it's become difficult to have these conversations in public because gaming has grown so tribal. These conversations meaning, like, conversations about the negative effects of games. Okay. Gamers, game developers, and even game journalists have become very defensive when video games are criticized by supposed non-gamers. Despite the fact that, as we are often told by the games industry, practically everyone plays video games these days. Partly due to an odd trend of gamers identifying their personal interest with that of the commercial games industry. When I appeared on the 2010 BBC Panorama documentary to say that games like Farmville had been intentionally designed with compulsion loops to keep players engaged for as long as possible, a tactic frequently discussed in games industry conferences and blogs, I was roundly criticized by gamers and journalists for letting the side, letting the side down, you know, the the, quote unquote our side, right? right? Mm -hmm. No wonder the TV producers couldn't find any other game designers willing to appear. Um, I do find that interesting. I think that's exactly right. I think I've uh, run into the exact same thing while uh, uh, after having become radicalized against gambling. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, and uh, we can think about certain... Big published pieces that defend gotcha mechanics, um, Mm -hmm. you know, on on certain large websites um, that uh, basically tell you to pull up. But, you know, uh, if if you're having a compulsion problem or you're running into the way this thing is designed and it's destroying your life, well, maybe you should just pull up your bootstraps and uh, not have that happen to you. Um, You know, some very frustrating pieces, but, you know, uh, it is interesting that it's not just criticism of games, but even sectors where we might be critical of gamification very specifically. Most of those places are, um, you know, are places where this defensiveness still appears, Uh, you know, thinking about uh, uh, Diablo Immortal, right, Mm -hmm. which uh, Mm -hmm. also had a similar, also from the same publication, weirdly enough, Mm -hmm. of uh, a a deep defensiveness around uh, loot box mechanics, essentially. Um, so I don't know. I think that's
1: interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Games aren't your friend, Michael <laughs> no, games. You know that? games are, are my friend. I think games are real and they are my friend. And if I love them hard enough, uh, then all, all rifts in the world shall be healed. no, no, they're like sticks
0: or or big wheels or like uh like a unicycle <laughs> or you know that uh, you know that big bicycle. Uh-huh. In
1: uh, I'm not listening. Eastern. I'm lighting a votive candle with Yoshi on it. Don't
0: stop. <laughs> that's idolatry. You can't do that. That's in like all the religions, Michael.
1: Not lighting the Yoshi candle. That, that's everyone's deal. <laughs> Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments and number one, don't light the Yoshi candle.
0: Yeah. You know, it's the the history of the world part one. Yeah. Uh, I've got 20 <laughs> commandments. I've got 10 commandments. <laughs> that was like number 17. Yeah. Don't light the Yoshi candle.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway. Uh, once gamification aimed to save the world, now it's just about saving yourself. Yeah. It's
1: the end of uh, chapter one. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter two, then, is level up your life. <clears throat> and this is mostly about uh so the the broad picture right this is about the way that gamification uh joined up with like the health and wellness movement of the 2000s and the 2010s mm-hmm. so things like uh we fit right um uh but also like health trackers on your phone uh fitbits things like that Mm -hmm. uh the brain age yes and then that's sort of the the other big one is like the quote-unquote brain training apps uh whatever that ds thing was called uh that gets talked about a lot um and then i uh just thinking about like how again that rhetoric right the brain training rhetoric how uh uh loosed it is. I was thinking uh, the other day about those uh, like spam ads you see sometimes that are like, if you can name these (laughs) ten classic (laughs) cartoons, you have a photographic memory and then it's like a picture of the Flintstones. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh my god, I can do it. (laughs) Right. Like I have a photographic memory because I remember the Flintstones. (laughs) Time to sit down in the house absolute and write my memoir. Um. quick 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 name all the members of the Flintstones (laughs) the members of the Flintstones yeah name
0: all name the whole family
1: uh uh Fred Wilma uh Pebbles and are we are we counting Dino the dog yeah okay so Dino
0: isn't there another child aren't there two children
1: no that's the neighbor's kids those are the rubbles that's Bam Bam that's uh oh Barney and Betty Rubble and Bam Bam, and they also have a saber-toothed tiger, and I'm not sure if that thing has a name. It probably does. Well, it's a living.
0: It probably has a job. <laughs> it, you know, it probably, like, runs a construction site. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. You've passed it. Yeah. You've done it. I, I've proven I have a perfect memory. I didn't know a single one of those other than Dino. <laughs> and only because you
1: mistook him for Dino De Laurentiis.
0: That's right. No, actually, uh, for... Uh, the Rat Pack guy who's named Dino. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love, I mean, this is like you just said, this is a pretty straightforward chapter, right? It just walks through kind of these different sectors of gamification as applied to like self betterment, Mm -hmm. um, and just dismantles all of them one by one. Uh, the fact, I, you know, I've never paid much attention to the brain training app stuff. I That's not a game that I ever thought was interesting. I guess it actually is the, the training part that made me have zero interest in it. Because, like, I don't care. <laughs> like, whatever, right? I'm in grad um, school. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just like, I don't, I don't, but on one hand, I don't need this. And on the other hand, it's like, it's everything I hate about games. Like, inherently, I don't want to do a bunch of arbitrary
1: puzzles. Yeah.
0: I don't like that when that's in a popular game, mm-hmm. let alone you know a game that's just supposed to be about doing. I'm not. I'm not doing Sudoku's. <laughs> who? Who are you to tell me to do a Sudoku math? Ugh. I like watching that guy on YouTube do the really hard ones. Where he's like, or he's like having to recite ancient poetry to figure out, you know, does a five go in there or whatever. Yeah. That's fun. Anyway, but uh, it is very funny to read through that, like, the science on that is just a bunch of horse shit. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and that anyone, it seems like, this is, this is Han's claim, right? It's not as uh, uh, totalizing as what I'm about to say, right? But Han basically lays it out this way. Anytime you see a brain training video game, the process is someone designs a video game. They get a neuroscientist or someone in that universe to come and test it with a group of people. If there's any neutral to positive effect, they then have that person triple down, and then they promote it as if it's going to change your life. Yeah. Uh, you know, It's very much like, well... Uh there's a couple scientists who say that smoking's not bad for you. Uh huh. So smoking's probably not that bad for <laughs> you, right? Like it has that vibe to it, right. like the corporate capture of the scientific literature.
1: hmm Yeah, we like we just need to find the uh neuroscientist who is willing to sell out on this specific thing.
0: <laughs> yes, basically. Like drinking five Coca-Cola's a day is good for you. <laughs> it keeps you at what we call the sugar line. Yeah. Which is good for you.
1: Yeah uh also talks about uh i mean uh relative to that also right talks about how like you know we fit is a lot of fun it is not like actually doing exercise you would be better off I just playing know. tennis right oh of course you would <laughs> you know what you're not gonna do while playing we fit
0: what blow your knees out <laughs> at right angles to the ground. <laughs> That's probably right? true. Like, yeah. Right. Like, you know, there is a, uh, a certain level of like, yes, there are benefits and drawbacks, mm-hmm.
1: but, um, yeah. Uh, the other thing, uh, and I think this is interesting, right? Is that, so a lot of the ways that, um, say exercise apps are designed, uh, particularly things that are designed to reward you for getting streaks, right? Oh, okay, you exercised, you know, however many days in a row. Why not go for one more? Why not go for one more? Uh, If you... Like many of them, it seems like are just out of the box. This is what they do. They just design. They are designed to uh, reward you and cajole you and like press you to do it day after day after day. And uh, if you are a person who knows anything about kind of like exercise and routines and whatnot, this is not good. Like you are supposed to have rest days. Uh, and like that's like you know big level. You are supposed to have rest days. And then like uh uh sort of granular level. Not everyone is in a position to exercise in the same way for the same amount of time or for the same number of days in a row, right? Different people have different bodies, have different needs, uh, different fitness concerns. And, uh, so many of these apps, these gamified exercise apps, uh, are, uh, designed in accordance with a, uh, well, he calls it the scalar fallacy, right? Uh, the one size fits all idea. Like we just design one system and it's a perfect, beautiful system for tracking and, uh, 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 you know, harassing you uh, to exercise and it's going to work for everyone and it's going to be uh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. So,
0: I mean, you know, this is also like the the unfortunate reason that discipline and punishes the thing that's cited here consistently and not any of the work on biopolitics. Right. Which is like. Uh, gamification in, in these scalar systems operate on the idea that there is a statistical average of a human being, yes, right, right. Uh, it needs that, mm-hmm. it like requires that, in fact, for it to work. Uh, the management of life itself, which is like critical to the the project of modernity, um, uh, you know, certainly in Europe and the United States, it, that's what's up, right? Like, it It. The, there's an assumption of the average human being, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't encompass everyone, quite purposefully, it doesn't, right? Um, but it encompasses a certain enough to create a social uh, maneuvering and change, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that is like a fascinating and weird thing. And this is such a clear example of how that happens, yeah. right? Um, and and why that occurs. I I thought this was a great chapter. I thought it was really clear um, and great to move through it. Um, you know, it, this is where I was really like, oh, each of these is basically like a long feature you know, mm-hmm. on a particular topic. And now and they've all been kind of crammed together in a book because there's not a huge amount of overlap between each of these ideas. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, it was good. Yeah. I liked it. Yep. So, uh, chapter three, grind and punishment. Great. Very good. <laughs> uh, this is about gamification in the workplace. Um, yep. This includes like the ways that Amazon, uh, gamifies warehouse work. Uh, uh, but also things like uh, the way that Uber uh, and and various rideshare apps also gamify uh, the ways that uh, the, their their workers work for them, right? Like, oh, if you go to this place, you might get a uh, uh, more pay or whatever, right? Oh, do you want to take just one more ride, right? Give one one more ride. Um, so that's. All the stuff that it talks about, uh, but the outcome is pretty clear and Han is not mincing words. Uh, He says that gamification is a ploy used to depress worker pay.
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, (laughs) because you create um, arbitrary yet difficult goals that are, you know, again, it's depending on this kind of social, um, uh, uh, you know, mean basically right right you right know, digital like tailorism, social average right and so as long as you so Taylorism as a concept is like all right you can find out the workflow that everyone is capable of doing of doing their individual part right so um sorry let's take one step back Taylorism if, in case you don't know is the uh, economic model of the assembly line mm-hmm. right so you break down processes you know we need to build a car Henry Ford is, you know, the the famous developer of Taylorism in the United States, or expander Fordism. In fact, is its own form of this, right? But Taylorism, conceptually, is what if you break down a the production process for a commodity into component pieces, into component processes, and then uh, put them in line so that everyone does one job and does it quickly and on purpose. Rather than say uh, building a Ferrari from the ground up with a team of ten people, right? You it, you know one person puts all the rivets in on the left back bumper, right? Um, you know the next person puts the front right wheel on that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you do that. You know if you've seen the beginning of Christine, you you get it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. They're bad to the bone, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Etc. Yes. Um, but uh, <laughs> but. Uh, what happens, right, is that Fordism then takes that and radically expands it and, and builds in other values, right? So if if it takes a person on average, you know, uh, run it with 50 people, and it takes those people on average uh, 15 seconds to put on a tire. It takes longer than that. We'll say it takes one minute, right? Mm-hmm. One minute to put on a tire. The, the beauty of the gamification model is that you can set, say, a goal. At one minute, mm-hmm. then you can set a reach goal, a rewarded reach goal at 50 seconds. Mm-hmm. That's slightly faster than the average, mm-hmm. right? That's going to encourage people to do it more quickly. If people don't reach that stretch goal, if people don't reach that kind of incentivized goal, then they're punished. Yes. <laughs> they don't get access to, say, uh, in, in the case of the Amazon warehouses, they don't get access to a pee break, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Things like that. And so uh, what what Han is running through here are the mechanisms through which this very old, you know, 100-year-old system of economic production, in particular in these mass spaces like Amazon warehouses or whatever and and, uh, distributed technologies like Uber, how gamification is kind of the face of a very old system. Um, while also creating a new development in that system that is perhaps even more insidious because what should theoretically be a reward are just uh, obligations or rights that have been taken from uh, uh, employees and then hidden behind uh, a reward. Yep. You know, it's like, what if you had to solve a claw machine to go to the bathroom at work? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the deal.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Not great. Uh, there's another interesting bit in here, actually, just, uh, uh, to touch on it is talking about how in, uh, a lot of these industries, there, there are jobs that exist above or below the API, right? So if you're like, yeah, if, yeah. if you're an Uber driver, you, you work below the API, uh, meaning that, uh, you are the person that you are not even person. That's the wrong word, right? Uh, back up a sec. In the, the, like, primal scene of the workplace, right? There's the the employee and the boss, right? Maybe the manager or whatever, but, like, you know, there's the person who's doing a job, and then there's another person who's managing them. Uh, and the person who's managing them is, like, looking at them, responding to them, saying, hey, do this instead of this. Uh, uh, and the employee is there, like, with them, uh, uh you know, giving their own feedback or whatever, like whatever you think is going on there. But the important thing is that it's a person talking to a person. Uh, when you're an Uber driver, uh, you are, or oh, as it appears, you are just talking to an app, right? You have your phone up. It is telling you what to do. Uh, it is telling you when there's a new ride or it's, you know, offering these little incentives. If you do this, then you'll get this, so on and so forth. Uh And on the other side of that, obviously, like a lot of that is automated, right? Um, But on the other side of the API, there are, in fact, people who are kind of like, you know, pushing levers and jiggling things into place, seeing if they can get certain things to happen. And that is what their job is. And so you can work on either side of this. But then Han also says that uh, uh, not that this is like exculpatory or anything, uh, but like from the, the sort of managerial side, this means also that you're not working with your employees you are essentially like uh uh pushing numbers around on a spreadsheet right it's getting gamified in both directions uh mm-hmm. but uh the difference is if you're on the if you're above the api you're the person with the controller like reading the menus and making those decisions uh whereas if if you imagine it is like an rts and then uh on the other side of the api you're like a little unit being moved around right so
0: the little game piece yes Um, there is, uh, a, another really interesting, it's like, um, you remember like reading libertarian blogs in the early 2000s? Boy, do I, you know what I mean? I mean, I know you do in in particular (laughs) young libertarian, Michael, but Mm -hmm. you know, there was like this, um, I don't know, this is probably like migrated to Substack now, I guess, you know, that the like political thought over there, but it's like, we believe blah. Did you know in reality, blah, blah. You know, uh-huh. like that, that's the, and, and, perhaps, and the answer is getting rid of regulation, uh-huh. uh, always, yes. you know, uh-huh. in the, you, there's just like this very particular way that, that, that libertarians in the early two thousands made claims. Um, I did kind of get that vibe here with the, uh, ELD conversation, um, about the truck drivers.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: there's a long, it starts on like kind of 74, 75. There's a long discussion about, um, uh, ELDs, which is an electronic device that logs your... I guess it's an electronic logging device, literally, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, what it does is it determines uh, when you're supposed to take a break as a truck driver. And there's, like, these regulations around it. And they used to have logbooks that were physical, but, of course, people could fudge it. So now they have created electronic versions of that to keep from fudging it. And Adrian Hahn, like, straight up does, like, a policy debate style, like, here's all the diss to using the ELD. Yeah. Number one, it makes people drive more wildly because <laughs> they are incentivized to drive more quickly and not more carefully. If they're If they're driving... Over their physical logbook and against the law, but they're not being surveilled, they're incentivized to drive more carefully because the punishments are higher. You know what I mean? There's this, like, real... Uh, snaking through the argument to 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 explain to us why the electronic surveillance version is worse than the previous version uh, that was you know by all industry uh, accounting right uh, uh, rife with abuse uh-huh. <laughs> and and being ignored in some cases and uh, and maybe this is impacted by this uh, I get on Facebook Michael uh huh. And Facebook serves me the wildest shit on the earth. Okay. Okay? Just things I would never experience in my life. And one thing that it serves me regularly are truck driver Facebook pages. Okay. Long distance trucking Facebook uh-huh. pages. And those people are talking about ELDs all the time. Mm-hmm. And they're also talking about constantly how the good old days of the logbook were better because everyone just made it up. <laughs> And about how, like, they ignore the ELD and, like, here's ways of circumventing it. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And there's also, like, regulations, electronic regulations now for, like, how to back up so you're not hitting people with your car or with your big truck. And uh, (laughs) even in there, like, here's how to circumvent that system.
1: Here's how how to run over everyone you want.
0: (laughs) Basically, it's like, I know how to back up. No one can tell me how to back up which maybe, right? Yeah. You know, you got in some point you got to trust the driver on it. But it is interesting, like what I found fascinating about this is I don't know very much about most of the things in this book because I don't do most of the things in this book. Uh, but I, I am a, uh, a happy observer to the trucking business because I find it fascinating. And it is notable that that what is presented here is a like, well, look at the costs and benefits and, and perhaps the problems of surveillance here. Um, it's universally hated by all the truck drivers, but also they, they are very willing to, seemingly in my observation, very willing in conversation to admit that the previous system was just pure fakery <laughs> yeah <laughs> and if no one caught you you were good to go right so you know there there is some like counter evidence to think through in some of the claims of this book i would encourage everyone to do with this book if you're reading it or or thinking through it seriously or engaging with it perhaps due to this book what adrian Hahn does to other books of this type right which is maybe go check the citations maybe actually go do the reading of the uh, actual work and do some scrounging around and i think Hahn would probably encourage us to do that mm-hmm
1: Anyway, uh, yeah, so there's also a little bit also about like uh, metrics in Microsoft Office Suite and things like that. Uh, so even uh, people who have desk jobs are being monitored and potentially gamified because everything is being reduced to numbers, to data, to things being tracked. Uh, and ultimately, uh, one of the critiques of gamification writ large that Han is going to make is that gamification in its like shallowest instance is just uh, putting a bunch of bells and whistles on the activity as it already exists, uh, and those bells and whistles disguise metrics. Or, like, not even disguise, but, like, it's a way of, like, uh, uh, presenting uh, metrics as, like, fun and exciting uh, or as something that you should be uh, uh, happy to have rather than a thing that's going to be used to, like, surveil you or judge you or punish you. Uh, so that brings us into chapter four, <laughs> which is called doing it well. Uh, and this is where Han talks through his experience. Uh, well, he talks through a, a bunch of things. Uh, but one of the main things that he talks about is the development of zombies run, which is the gamified exercise app that, uh, uh, you know, I, you talked earlier about having these clear sense memories of like reading things. I have this, you have a clear memory of being attacked by zombies yeah. while running. Yes. Uh, I was uh, uh, on campus. It was I was still in undergrad. It was late in undergrad. Uh, and, you know, this was the late 2000s, early twenty tens. So zombies were everywhere. That's actually the thing that uh, has really gotten lost, I think, for the Zoomers is that one of the reasons. That's right. Listen up, kids. Yeah. One of the reasons that zombie media was everywhere was because we were actually constantly being attacked by zombies. That was real life to us.
0: Yeah, that yeah. was that was it. That's like people don't recognize that uh, it's the same problem our generation has with like the World War II recipes, right? We we or even the 1970 ones, right? We think, oh, why were people putting a whole ham inside a Jello? Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have refrigerators. You yeah. had to preserve stuff inside a Jello, mm-hmm. right? And like we need to be humble around that. Zoomers need to be humble around the fact that basically 04 to to 10 you couldn't go anywhere without being attacked by a zombie. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've mostly taken care of that, but it was a real issue. And we, the media was responding to the time. I mean, (laughs) the walking dead was twelve's game of the year for lots of publications. And that's because it was responding to a real world issue.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So I remember like back when zombies run was announced because it came up on, I don't know, you know, uh, the, the blogs that we were reading back in the day, boing, boing or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, Yes. (laughs) Cory Doctorow was like, hey, check out this cool new app. Uh, that- I wonder if Cory Doctorow's ever...
0: Go ahead. I'll look that <laughs> up. I wonder if he's
1: ever been attacked by a zombie. No. Yep. <laughs> um. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, uh, anyway. Uh, that's when Zombies Run, in case you're not familiar, right? It comes out uh, during kind of the high point of zombie mania in uh, U.S. popular culture. And the basic idea behind it is that it is a uh, run tracking app. Uh, and to make the act of running more fun, uh, you get to pretend that you are in living in the zombie post apocalypse and zombies are chasing you. And so you run faster or slower, uh, depending on whether or not, uh, the zombies are closer to you if they're behind you. Right. And the, the thing gives you like little signals and like sound cues. So, you know, when to do this, um, It was extremely successful. Han co-developed it with, oh gosh, I don't have her name. I didn't write it down in my notes, but I know I underlined it here in the book. Uh, uh, If I can find it, I will will mention it. But anyway, he co-developed it, um, and it was very successful. And he sort of talks about, like, what was their strategy for gamifying running. uh, Naomi Alderman. Alderman. I knew there was an alder in there somewhere. Naomi Alderman. Mm -hmm.
0: I uh, can let me let me hit you. Okay. You're going to love this. You ready? Uh, uh, all right. 7:55 a.m. Tuesday, September 13th, 2011. Cory Doctorow on Boing Boing. Zombies Run Kickstarter-funded mobile game about running. <sighs> there we go. <laughs> got a little bit, He did write about it. Cory Doctorow did write about it on Boing Boing itself. Uh I don't does Han ever mention that this was kickstarted? Yes,
1: right? Following okay. a Kickstarter in late 2011, Zombies Run oh, launched okay. in early 2012. Okay. God, I just totally missed it <laughs> I, I, or, or
0: while I was reading just forgot seventy two thousand mm-hmm. dollars from three thousand four hundred sixty four backers. Yeah. There you go.
1: Uh, and uh, one of the points that Han makes is that the, one of the reasons that this worked out and that it was well and it was well received. And there are other things to talk about, but like one of the like, I think one of his like fundamental points is that he. Uh, What, how they were gamifying the thing was tailored to the thing that it was. It wasn't just like, oh, you ran. Good job. Here's a, here's a star. Here's a point. Oh, you got five stars. Now you have a badge. Like, why don't try for another, right? Uh, they sat down and they thought, okay, uh, you could run. Like, you know, how do you, how do you gamify running? Oh, what if you were being chased? Oh, what if you're being chased by zombies? And then everything kind of folds out from there because there's a whole bunch of stuff that's, uh, uh packed into this app that I had no idea about. And it actually sounds really interesting. Uh, ultimately, it seems like, so there's a plot line, right? It's like an audio drama. Basically, they they didn't just gamify running, but they like uh, built a whole sort of interactive audio drama around it. So you like there's a plot that progresses because you are like doing a runs between locations, like passing on messages, like getting word of survivors to people who can help them and things like that. And so uh, there's like feedback where you get to see the progression of the narrative. Uh, And then there's also uh, uh, like options for like I I didn't mark this page specifically, but I, you know, based on his comments about sort of like scalability earlier, I, I noted it. Uh, he says that there's an option where you can just, like, uh, progress through it without doing the runs, right? If you want to, if you just want kind of the audio drama aspect of it and ty- kind of to get to get the plot, there is an option in the app for you to do that. So it's not withholding of the little reward, which is you get to uh, have a little uh, bit of story fed to you and you get to kind of, like, follow the story as you're doing your runs.
0: Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. It seems like a cool game. Yeah, there were, and there were a bunch of kind of... Uh, Follow-on games from that that I remember, mm-hmm. kind of uh, you know, like other people kind of trying to replicate that uh, that success, and and it is produced as you, as you said, right, like as the good way of doing this. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you think about that? I mean, <clears throat> mm, sure, in that it seems like Adrian Hahn's, you know, heart is in the right place, right? I mean, I I, I think it's. It's a little authority in that, uh, you know, we're all kind of in the soup. Um, But uh, uh, I think one of the ways of maybe distinguishing what's happening here, right? Like what is good gamification? What is bad gamification? um, Is that Han's priorities uh, and I guess, you know, Alderman's priorities, too, or the whole team's priorities, because there's also an audio producer in here uh, uh, who gets brought up. Um, The priorities of the people who were making zombies run... Uh were quite simply not the priorities of most of the people who are pushing gamification like as as it's being critiqued right mm-hmm. um and I think that that is something to think about right That's to key into the question that you asked earlier or the issue you brought up of ideology uh what is it that people are hoping to enact in the world just fundamentally uh and then what are the technologies that they use or exploit to do that, yeah. And it just seems like Zombies Run has a very different goal at its starting position than a lot of the other stuff. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just uh, like that is it. That is. Uh, it would be one thing if we could change everyone's starting positions, right, to something. But the, uh, we have this problem where there's a world that pre-exists us, and there are people who have starting positions that are very, very different from our own.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, do you uh, do you like this piece about Watch the Skies? in here.
1: Uh this is extremely hard to follow because I don't really know what's happening in this game.
0: Oh. You don't know about Watch the Skies? No. I encourage everyone to watch Shut Up and Sit Downs uh like two part. I they do they they went multiple times, mm-hmm. but they have so they have two separate video series, but I strongly encourage people to watch it. Watch the Skies is a mega game. It's played with uh, maybe 50 people, more, mm-hmm. I don't know. A lot of people. Uh, all the books are available online as well, so you can, like, go and run it yourself if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. I've thought about doing it. It just seems like a lot of work, uh, obviously. Uh, but the idea is you, you uh, each... Um, there are, like, these tables, right? And the tables have a certain number of people associated. They're teams. Uh-huh. And they are each, I think, assigned um, part of the UN Security Council. I think that's the the pitch. And maybe more countries as well, but at least those countries are covered. Um, and the drive of the game is that uh aliens are invading
1: okay yeah and
0: there's another team who are playing the aliens that are like in a different room entirely Mm -hmm. Um, and so they have to mediate back and forth with communicators you have to like invest points in technology in order to figure things out there's also like um, uh, not hidden mechanics, but kind of hidden diplomacy, right? So I think in the shut up and sit down one, one of the countries starts doing diplomacy with the aliens in order to uh, subordinate the rest of humanity. They're, you know, are they good aliens? Or are they bad aliens? It's random, I think, every time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's this massive game. It takes a couple of days to play or at least one full day. Um, And there's a journalism team and, and Han in the book is writing about being on the journalism team. And what you have to do is you – because, you know, these billion people, you know, 50-plus people in this room, they can't all talk to one another. Right. You know, and each turn takes, like, 20, 30 minutes or so. And so they uh, – the the newspaper is responsible for running around and talking to everyone that they can, writing short articles, and then publishing a newspaper that people can then read. Okay. Um, And you can, like, plant a story, Right that's a falsehood. Does the journalist believe you? Do they not based on other information, stuff like that. So it's gamifying, you know, uh, or reducing to a game structure, something that's fairly real. Um, and Han thinks that's like excellent, right? Mm-hmm. Like very positive on that experience. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it's just that that's, that's it. Yeah. I, I, I think that that was fascinating. Um, uh, the, the success of Watch the Skies as a tool to teach journalism is surprising since, as far as I'm aware, it wasn't designed to be educational. Mm. Unlike the other players, the press team was not scored during the game, nor was our performance recognized in any systemic manner. Uh, yet I never felt any motivation flag, felt my motivation flag, precisely because the setting was so exciting that it would have been impossible not to have fun. Seeing players chuckle or scowl when they read our latest issue was reward enough. That's the essence of good gamification. It transforms boring and difficult tasks into a joy. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I think it's worth holding that up and thinking about that because Watch the Sky seems very cool to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You've just been given a job. You know what I mean, like that. I I don't even know if I would call it gamification. If if it is gamification, it's the lightest form of it, right? Where you are playing a game, and that game has a job in it. Yeah, uh, and you could do that job in such a way that was completely unattached to any real world actual practices of journalism, right? Yeah, I was
1: just thinking, like, because this is how my mind works, and this is also why it sucks to play games with me, is like, oh, if you did this to me, and there's, like, no penalty for it, I run the newspaper like Mad Magazine, and I make it impossible (laughs) for the game to run.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't... I I think, yeah, I think that would be against the spirit of the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, there's nothing that requires you to actually take it seriously and run it as a thing, right? You could just plant stories or make shit up, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, or purposefully get people's titles confused or whatever, right? You could be uh, a purposefully d- difficult person in the thing. And that, I, to me, it would not be educational to the, the point of it. Han already is a journalist, right. right? Has done journalistic work before this thing and is keyed into playing the role appropriately. But one could choose not to do that. And so I do wonder about... Um, You know, at the heart of good gamification for Han, right, of like positive and pro-social use of games, there is a willingness to do the thing right and to understand the game as a kind of metaphor for a real-world practice. Mm -hmm. And I don't know... I think that requires not just intrinsic motivation, that requires a kind of... um, Outlook on games or perspective on games that I think is very difficult to like inculcate in players right know, like I games are very good as this whole book is about games are really good at like getting you to do stuff I think they are perhaps very bad at getting you to have an ideology of the world Mm -hmm. right or or an ideological kind of uh, perspective. And uh, that's why I'm missing that, I think, in this book, right? Is it like it seems arbitrary, right? Well, if you're a good journalist and you really want to do the thing, then you're going to have a good time and learn to do more stuff and watch the skies. If you're not a good journalist and you don't know how to do the thing already, you might just do a bad job Mm -hmm. uh, and the game might not work. Right. Right uh okay great like it seems arbitrary right
1: yeah that is correct so then uh the next chapter weirdly enough uh wings us back around to kind of what the earlier chapters were doing chapter five is called the gamification of games uh and this is uh about several things in in part right it's about the invention of achievements um and sort of the spread of them now the ubiquity of them uh uh Achievements came about during uh, the Xbox era, right? There was an Xbox Live thing. I remember when achievements were unveiled and they were ridiculed uh, in the corners of the gaming internet that I was in. Everyone was like, this is so absurd. Like, who cares? Why would people want this? Who cares about your gamer score? Uh, and wouldn't you know it, within a couple of years, people cared very much about their gamer score. And your gamer score could say a lot about you on Xbox Live. And uh, those achievements, they they proliferated to Steam. Uh, they became, what is it, on PlayStation trophies. Um, mm-hmm. And, well, that might seem all well and good. Who, 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 who else would mind, like just having having a little number that ticks up as you play a game and lets you know that you've done something, Uh, except then there are uh, sort of sound bites here from people talking about how like, oh, I actually just like play games with easy achievements to get my gamer score up. Or uh, if I don't sort of exhaust the potential achievements of a game, I feel like I haven't completed it. Uh, And then concomitant to this, you get designs of games that are molded to having more achievements. One of the examples here is like the Ubisoft model, particularly Assassin's Creed, with a giant map and a billion collectibles and all of this stuff that you can just really sink your time into. So suddenly there are people who feel... Uh, Like, if they aren't clearing out their achievements, then they aren't really playing the game. But then there are games that are, like, metastasizing the things that you have to do in order to get achievements. Oh, we have reinvented uh, time-on-device culture. Right. Uh, And this ties right into the ways that uh, video games have also come to host various gambling mechanics uh, and loot boxes. Right. So... Uh...
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. turns out mechanisms for making games more playable can come for games themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. Boo. Boo.
1: Who is it that calls... Yeah, it was EA's vice president of legal and government who called the loot boxes surprise mechanics. I love it. Surprise mechanics. Like, I love this surprise mechanic. (laughs) Can't... said it's like a kinder egg, like getting a prize inside of the egg. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But uh, it
0: generates billions of dollars. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Kinder Eggs also do that. I don't know. Yeah. Um. Yep. Yep. This is also one of the places where like mobile games really come into play. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. If you're looking for the thing, compulsion it loops, is uh, you know. very interesting. There's a couple pages on Assassin's Creed Unity. Mm-hmm. You know, just having too having too many things on the map. <laughs> Um, I think it is only possible for me to have completed all of those games and, and write a book on Assassin's Creed because I experience zero compulsion to do any of this. (laughs) like i i I don't care about opening chests no who cares no you know what i mean like like even a little bit you know uh getting chivos for doing arbitrary crap no way (laughs) not on my watch buster nope uh and so like very funnily i am uh you know i've completed all these games a couple times at this point but uh definitely
1: do not have the bulk of the achievements for it
0: i'm not completing districts in paris who
1: cares right uh, and then the chapter sort of ends by saying, uh, "Here's one game company that's actually handled this pretty well, Nintendo." <sighs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and this, I find this is
0: part- all these things to be so just as present in Nintendo games, mm-hmm. and I don't play them.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is part of like the situation that Han is in is that he is looking for kind of like brighter spots. This is, you know, right. the, your average reader doesn't want to read this book and then like come away and be totally depressed. They're not reading addiction by design. That's not light reading. Uh, and so Han is kind of looking for a, uh, way like because it all because of all of the other stuff he's just talked about it is so ubiquitous in contemporary gaming that finding something where it just doesn't seem to be there as much I think can feel like a a, a relief right right um so i mean it's i think it is like true in the sense that uh the ways that nintendo gamifies or whatever are not the same. Uh, but they're still I I I the way that Nintendo can uh let's say really control fan sentiment. Is is something that uh, brushes up against this for me. Right. There there is a way in which almost like every Nintendo Direct is kind of like its own loot box where everyone's like, are they going to renounce this thing this time? Right. Uh, Like Nintendo is doing it, but maybe not in quite the same way as other uh, 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 publishers. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, yes, right. It is not um, monetized. And, and I think that that really is the, you know, the major thing is it's like not built into the game system where you can pour a bunch of money into it under a, uh, 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 what do you call it? Like a casino logic, right. right? Like that that really is the thing. But yeah, like the, the way that they release um, content is heavily predicated on the same ideas, mm-hmm. right? You know, of when will it come and what will it be, you know, keeping... Actual game content, you know, even after we know about the game, but keeping it under wraps until people explore it and find it. That's a big deal. Uh, Creating. I mean, to me, Super Mario Odyssey has the exact same system of, you know, quote unquote compulsion loops as Unity does. They're just not marked on the map, right? Like you just need to go find all those coins or whatever Mm -hmm. um, and and do that yourself. Um, watching Chip and Ironicus play through all of Odyssey and kind of run through and find all of these arbitrary things to get to the next level, right? Like Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that presents you with something that feels like intrinsic motivation. But I promise you, having played both, I feel them the same way, right? And because I have no attachment to Mario and to three D platformers or anything, I feel like I, I get a uh I feel a similar arbitrariness to it. And where you were encouraged to, oh, I'll just go get one more. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's over here. I'll get one more, and that's the, for me. It's the same thing as Unity's. You know, oh, there's two more chests in this region. I'll go get those chests. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so you know, I I think the distinct. I I think you're right. You know, Han's got to find the good places where the good places are. But I I would be very interested in reading, uh, perhaps a more in depth exploration of these mechanics because really and truly because i don't have very much fan sentiment for any of this stuff it all feels the same and and reads the same to me um it's just radically different and and you know really we can't can't understate the fact that however the design works and however the kind of compulsion design works in mario at the end of the day they're just taking your 60 bucks and leaving you alone. Right. And everything else is internal for time on device. Right. Right. As opposed to uh, Valhalla AC Valhalla, which is going to sell you uh, all kinds of different things, including like new skins for your horse and all and stuff like that. Right. right? Um, so, you know, I get it. Yeah.
1: Uh, chapter six, the magnificent bribe. Yep. <laughs> uh, so this is the chapter that sort of talks about, like, governance and sort of broader social concerns. Uh, the 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 title comes from a—I uh, think it does—is it mentioned here? Yeah, I think it comes from uh, this Lewis uh, Mumford speech that he begins the chapter by quoting. Uh, the basic pitch of the Mumford speech is— uh, well, one, like the, the the rise of kind of the authoritarian techniques, what he uh, uh, names as uh, like what happens when things like agriculture and the media become centralized in these uh, giant massive uh, uh, operations that are not they are they are corporate, right? They are They' are vast and corporate and they are beyond the control of like people on the ground. Um, what happens then? Oh, well, people on the ground are now sort of alienated from their channels of information from where their food is coming from or how things are built, uh, and, and disseminated so on and so forth. Uh, and we, for Mumford are running into, he's right. Mumford is writing, I think in the sixties. Yeah. 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah running into this place where it's like, oh, like, this is not good, right? We we are running into a place where, like, our technology is going to be authoritarian in design, authoritarian meaning, like, centralized and beyond the control of the people who are subject to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, in this, we've seen this appear in different terms, you know, uh, games of empire, this is empire, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the kind of broader concept. Uh, in American discourse, this is the military industrial complex and this is also tied in with uh the mech right mm-hmm. uh, McKinsey works, military entertainment complex mm-hmm. right that uh all it, and Mumford is like in the in the mix for all of these thinkers right um it, Mumford's kind of one of the people writing during the 60s and 70s and kind of pointing to these tr- transformations that are occurring um, in capitalism and uh, the kind of capitalist consumption of all possible, Locations in in society. Uh, I, I, you know, this chapter is really interesting to me because on one hand, it's just trying to give you the rundown of this, and as you said at the beginning of the episode, we've covered most of this in other books so far. Mm -hmm. You know, from everything from the Krogan book uh, gameplay mode to weirdly enough. Gosh, what is the book where the Lego
1: racers go? Uh, uh, Game Worlds? Is that what Seth Giddings is? Game the author. Wor- yeah, Seth yeah.
0: Giddings, Game Worlds. Uh, th- I think some of that stuff is in here, too, right? Like, what are the mechanisms to um, uh, get children to do stuff? <laughs> <You> know, that <laughs> right. That's in here as well, right? Um, the other thing that I guess matters here, too, is that, you know, uh, this very much has the flavor of Twitter arguments from four years ago. Yeah. Of the, the Chinese social credit system. Yes. Uh, oh, my gosh. In China, they've got numbers associated with people. And Adrian Han does a very good, you know, very patient of like, well, did you know there's a thing called a credit score? Yeah. <laughs> in the United States. Right. And uh, it does the same thing and is in many ways way more opaque. Yeah. than, than uh, any other system. But then also very patiently walks through the fact that, like, that's mostly propaganda in China, it seems like any time this, this has been attempted, people get really pissed off about it. They they don't just accept this as part of their day-to-day life. Most of these experiments have gone on for a little while and been dropped. Right. And most recently, it seems like, most recently to the publication of the book, the biggest one was adopted and dropped in three days because people were so pissed off about it. Right. So, um, you know, people do seem actually to rebel when these big systems uh, run into each other. It's also hard to to read this chapter and not think about the um, uh, American conspiracy theory, you know, going back to the early nineties, and maybe even earlier than that, but really comes into prominence in the nineties around uh, the UN, the WTO, and the uh, um, uh, the loss of paper money. Uh-huh. You know, those conspiracy yes. theories, yes, yes. right? So like everyone knows your transactions, all of these kinds of things, uh, digital <laughs> some money, some sort of yeah, some sort of Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But oh. government control, right? When the market controls it, that's cool. Uh huh. Okay, yeah. But when the government controls it, that's and that is actually the logic. But yeah, you know, you you start seeing the same mechanisms here within that, right? You know, thinking about the the people who adhere to that theory that um that once everything is fully digitified, di- digitized, yeah. digitified, whatever <laughs> turned into Digimon, uh, yeah then you become, um, you know, kind of victim to to arbitrary guidelines by the state. Um, and, uh, you know, on one hand, in the U.S., certainly that's a prominent conspiracy theory, right? I don't think anyone's trying to get rid of paper money. It doesn't feel like a thing. Um, but uh, on the other hand, the you don't want to be at the whims
1: of a system. Right.
0: You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think all the time. You, did you ever see the Neil Blomkamp movie Elysium?
1: No, I didn't. Uh,
0: well, I you know give or take.
1: You know what I mean? There's some okay, good stuff yeah. in there,
0: some bad stuff in there. Uh but one is where uh Matt Damon who's playing the main character has to like go to uh like a social services thing and it's just a robot mm-hmm. that won't listen to him and it's like looping back and forth and it's like yeah uh that seems ridiculous until you try to engage with any automated system on the planet. Yes, right. Uh and then it's like, uh-oh. This 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 is more realistic than you ever want to engage with. So right. anyway, that that's all to say that, you know, this this chapter runs kind of both of those ideas, right? On one hand, people really rebel against um you know, the actual applications of big uh algorithmic systems on top of them, but on the other hand, everyone's trying to push for it and uh it's maybe a cause for
1: concern. Yeah. Yep. Uh I did like the point where, as you said, there's a lot of propaganda here and the way that the Chinese social credit score is often talked about is uh, in very totalizing terms, right? That it's like yeah. this one system that's being rolled out by the the central authorities and everyone's beholden to it and Han works through it and he's like, actually, like... Uh, each, like, province had kind of their own version, and each one was different, and it was really difficult centralizing them and getting them all to, like, be flush with one another. And also, here's one place where the, the system was activated, and actually, like, it's like a, a, a couple hundred people didn't even enroll because the uh, government didn't advertise that the system was starting, so they just kind of, like, hung in limbo in the system forever. So I think uh that's always a nice yeah. thing to to get right the fact that uh, uh uh there is friction in the world for the implementation of a lot of things as you said with right. the, uh people pushing back and so on.
0: Yeah, and also these are human systems, right? right?
1: Like it, because part of the reason lots of people didn't
0: uh uh move in that system, you know, they were assigned 100 points and then when the system was sunset they had 100 points. And the reason for that is Some agencies just didn't share data with one another. Right. (laughs) Um, And because they didn't do that, people's scores didn't go up and down. So good. You know what I mean? Like the humans just decided not to do that because they didn't like the idea of it. Um, I do like the notion that like if you speed through a pedestrian crosswalk that you don't get like a good home loan, (laughs) uh, which is like one of the like boogeyman's of the thing. Uh Um, And there's, you know, there's something Han is using this as a thing of like, well, you know. Is intrinsic motivation better or is extrinsic motivation better? And like it, in the last instance, always Han is is holding out for intrinsic motivation is better. Being good because you're good is good. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Being good because someone's forcing you to is not good. Uh, but you know what? I think everyone should stop at a crosswalk. Yeah. <laughs> like just straight up. I think everyone should do that. <laughs> um. And uh, you know, but I don't know if the system's the way to get there. Yeah. But I'm go- I'm going to go out on a limb. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm I'm a I'm a, a free thinker. No one can hold me down.
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I I think you should stop for pedestrians. You should not speed through crosswalks, no. You shouldn't speed through a crosswalk. Uh, other other places that this goes then so the magnificent bribe uh is a way of describing like the ways that a system can uh, appear to provide you all the things that you need with the caveat that you never ask for anything more right that's the yeah. bribe like you're getting all the stuff that you need and now we're going to like fiddle with the widgets and do whatever you know, opaque stuff on our supply side and you can't say boo about it because if you say boo then maybe you're not going to get even the tiniest scrap of the thing that you need um and uh so the other places that this shows up in is like in elections this is where we talk about uh, barack obama again quite extensively um in particular uh the like leaderboard system uh that show like people got points for hosting parties donating money making calls canvassing that sort of thing it was my.barackobama.com this was uh uh shortened to my B.O. And I just want to say in 2007, I didn't realize we were that innocent. I didn't, like. That's funny. Right. Like if, if Twitter of like, say 2013 or like 2012 onward, 2011 onward had existed in 2007 and Obama came out with, his like, Hey, come join my B.O. My God. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Uh, There's also this thing about, like, uh, the most, like, horrifying thing in this chapter is the class dojo stuff. Oh, no,
0: no, I do know. Yeah, Yeah. the classroom disciplinary tool. Right. Totally blanked on the name.
1: Yeah, when I was in school, we had this. We called them incentive points, and it was just a thing that the school kept. Like, we had charts. And they just like, you know, you like, oh, didn't turn in your homework for one class. So you miss like one of your points for that month or week or however it was. They got replenished. Uh, well, I grew up in real
0: America. We didn't have any of this. Yeah. You were just physically threatened by an adult if you, if you were out of line. <laughs> there was one time in middle school where like a bunch of boys got in trouble and we were told that if we were if we kept acting up, I don't even think I was like part of the group. we got, But I was just, you know, in trouble broadly, mm-hmm. as happens to you as a group at that time. And uh, we were told that if we didn't, they would remove all the stall doors from the bathroom. (laughs) Um, okay. I don't know what behavior that would have uh, you know, done, but you know, it was just literally being physically threatened. Yeah. Um, was that's real America. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't know what kind of Midwestern crap you got going
1: on. Yeah, right? well, I lived yeah in in Midwestern fake America uh where if you had like so many incentive points still remaining at the end of a semester, you could go to uh the the skating rink and get a pizza. Uh, And everyone else who didn't have enough points, they had to stay back at school and be in study hall all day.
0: Participation trophies. Uh Look, I'm a coastal elite. Uh And uh, the only way that I was motivated to do anything as a child was under threat of uh, (laughs) physical harm. (laughs) Uh,
1: Anyway, Class Dojo sounds like a nightmare because it's like an incentive point system, but it's an app. It's a classroom app. Uh, and it's got, I don't understand quite how this works. It's got sound effects because it's talking about how like uh, once uh, the, the classroom has been basically made docile to the system, uh, <laughs> right. the teacher can just go to the computer and like do entries. And there are sound effects that show that people are losing points and yes. some, and everyone in the class will like change their behavior because no one, they just know that points are being lost. No one knows whose points are being lost or why yeah this sucks shit this is terrible like this is this is objective
0: evil in the world and like i understand in fact you know (laughs) like the the adherents have a point right like Mm -hmm. no one is wrong in this scenario because they're saying look the threat of bad things happening to you the disciplinary form that is what school has always been Uh uh-huh right and back in the day and even during my own childhood the threat was being physically attacked by an adult, right? Like that's the threat. We had we had a school resource officer. I'm sure you did too. That's just a dude with a gun walking around, in a cop's uniform. We did right? not have one of those. You didn't have a resource officer.
1: Nope. Just more fake okay, America well, for me.
0: A, it's a guy with a gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, just just tailorism for you. Just a <laughs> points based system of Taylorism. Uh, but. Uh, you know in, in P- just just uh, michael sunshine land of points and pizzas uh, i live in real america yeah. but uh but right like so their point is this is just a, a different form of coercion right like uh you know if if uh if a, if the state has a monopoly on violence the school has a monopoly on discipline right and it's the the uh the way that that is shaped that that matters right and probably this is a less violent form than like people hitting kids the mm-hmm. uh uh, someone told me recently, who, someone who was a, a high school teacher, told me that when they were, um, uh, uh, gosh, what's it called? Like, onboarded into to high yeah. school, mm-hmm. they were told that there were the uh, the three hits. Do you want
1: to guess what the three hits are? The three hits? What? The three hits. Yeah, I'd never heard this before either. The three hits. Like, does hit here mean good? Like, nope, top of the no. Nope. Oh, okay. If there are three hits, and they're all bad. The three? The What? Mm-hmm. Like, are the they three physical hit, okay. hits?
0: I No, they're not. Okay, you want me to? I'll, I'll lay them out for you. Uh-huh. There, two of them are physical hits. Oh, okay. The, here are the three hits. They're all bad. Number one, you hitting kids. Oh, okay. This is a rule that has to be made. Uh-huh. Because it happens all the time still. Uh-huh, right? yep. Number two, the kids hitting you that's bad too uh-huh. can't let that happen yeah that's that the whole operation's not gonna work if, <laughs> if they realize that they, that the school does not have a monopoly on discipline right yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that's gonna go bad three hitting on the kids oh okay yeah, yeah, That's which is like bad. deeply depressing, mm-hmm. right? But also a rule that has to be said repeatedly. Yeah, and also implicitly within that, they can't hit on you as well. But I think three is a better
1: number than four.
0: Yeah, I actually asked that question. Why not the four? <laughs> yeah, um, like so it's just
1: fine for the kids to hit on us, right? Um, right?
0: Nope. Four hits. Just yeah. it's
1: a you know, sub sub hit three.
0: Yeah. But the point of saying all that, and you know the the conversation I was having with my colleague about it, is that uh, like we all know that these systems are real, yeah, right? Like. Right. This is this is how the thing, this is the rules of the thing. Um and uh the this is like class dojo or whatever is just a way of really doing the Foucault thing, right? It's yeah. about at the practice of the self mm-hmm. rather than you know actual disciplinary function. Yeah. And so yeah, if you go back and so and, and you start hearing <laughs> wah, 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 or whatever, <laughs> like the man. demerits button, you're going, uh oh, uh oh. I've been talking. Uh, I'll stop talking so I don't get any
1: demerits yeah. or whatever. Yeah, can I just read Why? this? There's a section Please, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so this just says, <clears throat> um, Olivia Blazer, a Class Dojo thought partner, Class Dojo right. is the name of the app, uh, yep. a Class Dojo thought partner presents the perfect solution on the company's official blog... From experience, so this is a quote within the quote. From experience, hearing the positive or negative point sounds are even more effective if students cannot see who is being awarded points. Hearing sound immediately causes students to self check and monitor their be- own behavior. This is called the dojo effect. That's in quotes. They will literally sit up straighter and focus on the task at hand when they hear the sta- sound. Students think, Was that me? Am I doing what I am supposed to be doing? You might even create a bogus student in your class to award positive and negative points to just for strategic implementation of the dojo effect so I had a big some sort of of like fictional whipping boy right well like like just in reading that I had a a vase full of beautiful wildflowers sitting next to my computer and as I read that the flowers wilted (laughs) (laughs) like that is how evil this is (laughs) It is, but (laughs) right,
0: like the the defenders do have a point and not a a point in the sense of like, I think it's good, but but a purely pragmatic point is like this evil is suffused throughout the whole operation, right? Right. Like it's there. It's your choice of what the evil looks like. Um, And they're like, well, this is a better evil than the other evil, which is like constantly threatening children with beating them, uh, which is, you know, rife through American education. Um, It's like, I guess it's better than that, but there's got to be a better world than those two things. Um, Another thing that's interesting. So right after that quote, right? uh, uh, Han says, you couldn't build a better on-ramp to Foucault's Panopticon if you tried. Let me tell you, this is also maybe uh, uh, another place where the reading of Foucault gets a little mixed up. This is not an Uh on-ramp to the Panopticon. This is the Panopticon.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, (laughs) this is the highway that runs straight out of the Panopticon.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You're already, if this is working, if if you're playing a sound effect and then people are going, "Uh uh-oh, there's demerits happening. I need to straighten up. That is the panopticon. You, there's no on-ramp. We're, you're there already. They're in fact through it already. They're in the the chosen land of of panoptic thing because the panopticon is just a word for self-management and surveillance. Right. right? Uh, you never know when someone's spe- you never know when the noise is for you or not. So then, therefore, you comport your behavior appropriately. This is the panopticon. We are already there. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems terrible. I no, so I can say this. I don't think this is used regionally where I live. Mm -hmm. And the only reason for that is I've never heard a student talk about it. Um, Students quite often in my classes will talk about like weird technologies that have been wielded against them. I think that comes up fairly often, partially because they get to college and they need to express like their deep displeasure with the educational thing that happened to them before, Mm -hmm. uh, which is great. I think that's a that's part of the working through of college and like having to relearn how to learn uh, after discipline has been such a nightmarish form of that for so long um but uh but no one's ever talked about this so mm-hmm. maybe maybe it's not as widely used at least in the american south yeah uh
1: then the next chapter is i've done my research this is about conspiracy theories and basically the argument here is that uh conspiracy theories uh on the internet specifically uh I don't think Han actually has a a, a sort of like order of operations on this or like a history of it, but there's, uh, it is obvious enough. There is a way in which the mechanics of ARGs, alternate reality games, and the mechanics of, uh, conspiracy theories sort of converge online in terms of the activities that you undertake and the kind of communities that form in the discussions that you have. Uh, you know looking at a bunch of information and trying to find like secrets that are hidden there or finding connections to some other uh, pre-existing body of knowledge or uh, clues that you already have uh, and then using that to extrapolate further uh, and then uh, you know hopping onto the the subreddit and chatting with everyone else who's also doing the same thing and seeing if they've made any cool connections that you want to take and uh, make part of your own practice
0: mm-hmm. Uh. I think this chapter is wrong. Okay. I just don't think that this I think that this uh by tying the QAnon impulse to gamification specifically mm-hmm. um and really it's about the gamification of the platforms that uh QAnon is on yeah. the most, mm-hmm. right? Um I think that it just misses the vast history of conspiracy and and that's because I've been writing about this recently, you know, mm-hmm. I I've done a lot of research on conspiracy. Uh, in the history of it and the kind of framing of conspiracy and how it operates. But I, I think this is like, um, you know, signs taken for wonders, right? Like this is a broader, much more banal system that is sharpened to a point in QAnon. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't think that gamification has very much to do with incentivizing it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, I, I do take the point. I think Han is right in that there's internal mechanisms that do that work. Yeah. Um, so, for example, talking about the Boston bomber um, uh, investigations, big quotation marks, investigations, right? Uh, 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 mob. Yeah. You know, that formed uh, on Reddit. And reading quotations from some of the people involved in that who were saying, like, yeah, I was just kind of in it for the Reddit points, right? Yeah. Like, number go up and number go up feel good. Mm-hmm. I think that's right, you know, but I think that has a lot to do with the platform. But the reading strategies of, of QAnon conspiracists, what they're after, um, the kind of incentives that are born into that, I don't really think that has much to do with gamification. I think that has to do with a much more fundamental system of capitalist cash-in. You know, mm-hmm. like some percentage are true believers. You know, I I have to believe that people are who are hanging out in Dallas in an RV for months waiting for JFK Jr. to reappear. Um, I have to believe that some of those people are true believers, right? Like yeah. it just doesn't work. Um, and I don't think that they are there because of like a bad gamified system. I think they are there because conspiracy theories, uh, which have been... Prominent for a thousand years, um, but have really upticked in the past 150 or so, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the way they're distributed in terms of, of the mechanisms of them. I think they're just very compelling and they latch on to, uh, a human desire to speculate and, and to put narratives together. Um, you know, I just think there's other stuff going on. If people want a more fine grained, um, um, idea of this uh I, I forget her rice i think jenny rice is her name um she wrote a book called awful archives that came out a couple years ago uh 2020 yeah jenny rice conspiracy theory rhetoric and acts of evidence it's a book about like where do people get their evidence from um and how do they get involved and she's really looking at anti-semitic conspiracies she's looking at ufo conspiracies um a little bit of kind of contemporary q kind of stuff but not a huge amount Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know. I just this this chapter to me of all the chapters and I'm fairly familiar with lots of the stuff that shows up across this book. This is the one where the evidence feels most cherry-picked to me. Mm-hmm. Um and it feels most kind of feature articley, you know, na- it feels the most New York Timesy to me. Mm-hmm. Um and it's the one where there's the most stakes, honestly, yeah. right? Like people want to be able to explain the mechanisms of uh violent, horrifying conspiracies, right? Mm-hmm. You know, people have died because of QAnon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's overwhelmingly in the in the cases where that has happened. That has been uh overwhelming in the cases of people provoking the police and um being killed themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh that's happened quite a few times over the past few years, uh, around QAnon specifically. But I don't know. There are just some real stakes here to how you read this argument. And I don't think that the people who are white supremacist gun runners who are stockpiling and prepping for the race war that's coming. I gamification does not explain the mechanisms of information transference that are producing those people. Right. Um and this is where my anti-humanism comes out, right? Like those people didn't make a bad choice. Those people are within a superstructure of uh, ideological transformation that is not intervenable into by individual human beings, right? Like, I can't bootstrap my way out of a all-encompassing way of reading the world. Right. Um, there is something else happening there. And gamification, I think, is involved. Like, I, I would never say that, you know, the incentive structures that are involved here around... Um, bad information production of course those are gamified right metrics yeah. go up now on x.com you get money for doing it right yeah. like it's it's even worse mm-hmm. than, it, than it was when han wrote this um but i don't think this exhausts it and i i don't think you should leave this chapter thinking you have figured out what's going on and unfortunately the way that this is written might lead you to think that way
1: mm-hmm. uh i will say i so uh, han uh, was a writer uh, has written actually a couple ARGs it seems like, but was mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. I think lead writer for Perplex City, which was a pretty big ARG. Uh yeah. and so I appreciated some of the insights that we get there in the pro, like what is it like, uh, being a person on the other end of an ARG and having to keep it going, um, yeah. just because you know the. Thinking of other shows that we've done, particularly like Homestuck Made This World and some of the uh, claims that I made about uh, how Homestuck worked, right? Uh, And Han talking about these, very frankly, about this feeling of like your uh, uh, player base, right, outstripping you at every turn, like they can work through your content so fast. Uh, and come up with ideas that are so much better than what you thought you were going to do that you just start taking their ideas and, like, using them to string things together to make it look like you planned it that way the entire time. Uh, Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, But, yeah, I don't think it um, uh, necessarily jives with the conspiracy stuff, except for the part where... uh, uh, I think one of the things that happens in conspiracies is in sort of like conspiracist thinking is taking a whole bunch of doing that move actually yourself right on the player side of being able to uh, look at a broad swath of information and kind of derive an illusion of elegance from it by cherry picking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, uh, and like I, I'm similar. I think all the evidence that is here in this chapter, especially around that, and the and the couple times that Han has been drawn into conspiracies himself because of his attachment to these, mm. I think that's fascinating. <laughs> like, I'm not critical of of the content of the chapter really, um, but you know, this is missing. You could take nearly everything that's said about QAnon here, and then strip it back to the 1930s and Henry Ford's financing of the printing of the protocols of the Elders of Zion mm-hmm. in the United States, and nearly all the evidence will comport, right? Yeah. Like, what what Han is really talking about is our our current moment's way of generating mass knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that is involved in games, but only because we live within a media ecology that is increasingly gamified itself, right? Um, QAnon is not supercharged uniquely because of this, right? Mm-hmm. All knowledge production is, is transformed by that. Um, and so I don't actually think that understanding gamification actually allows you to understand QAnon any better, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been in the same spot that Han is, right? Like, I too have been drawn into conspiracy theories. Uh, Not ones that are about uh, my involvement in a video game, unfortunately, right? But uh, with ones that say, uh, are about, I don't know, um, being nice to your colleagues, (laughs) right? Yeah. Or uh, being involved in that. And that comes up repeatedly for me. And I've had... Uh, You know, articles that I've written photoshopped uh, in order to bring me more closely in line with that or to paint me as a ideologue in a particular kind of way. And I'm being vague on purpose because uh, uh, to follow these threads, right, of of the places where these conspiracy theories are operated, to follow the threads is naturally to boost the analytics over there, right? Right. So I don't encourage you to go figure these things out and, and you shouldn't. Um, but right. Like all of this is not gamification in any kind of way to me. It's just parasitic to our communication technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I, this is the chapter where I was really like, I don't know
1: this. I, I don't think this is where it's at. Uh, chapter eight, then <clears throat> the world as game. Uh, and this is, uh, sort of, I mean, it's about a couple of things. One is about how, uh, uh our ludic century, uh, as, as some have called it, right. Uh, seems to provide like the game as the metaphor for what life is. And this is sort of vaguely contrasted with, uh, Shakespeare and the, all the world's a stage quote. Um, so like, you know, the, the, the this is not like teased out explicitly within the text really, but this idea that, you know, at one point, uh, we thought about the world as a theater, right? It's, it's a stage Mm -hmm. and we all come out and we play our part and then we recede. Uh, and now like maybe the world is a game, uh, you know, McKinsey work would call this game space. The idea that the world has become gamified or ludified or whatever. Uh, and what are the outputs of that? Well, for Han, the use of game metaphors really seems to hollow out and trivialize a lot of actual human interactions. Uh, And uh, he he notes like, for instance, the weaponization of like streaming in uh, uh, right wing mass shootings. Right. And the idea Mm -hmm. of like the number of people you killed is a high score and that sort of thing. Uh, But this also connects up with things like uh, store reward programs and like investment apps like Robinhood and meme stocks where uh, there are these systems in place and people come to them with uh, what might be characterized as a sort of playful nihilism. Uh, I don't know if that's accurate or if you would agree with that Cameron, yeah, sure, yeah, okay, yeah, uh, so you know, just that like hmm, not great,
0: yeah, this is the you know, and maybe it was coming after reading the previous chapter, this was the most like all right, fine, yeah, <laughs> you know, um uh it is interesting to to think about like uh the end of the chapter in particular, Mm-hmm. the uh where he's talking about. The, I mean, I like the idea that that the metaphor of game, mm-hmm. right? Again, hey, rhetoric, rhetoric, right. rhetoric, rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Metaphors matter. Yeah, rhetoric, rhetoric, rhetoric. But um, that the that that provides like such a controlling mechanism for things that it might prevent us from like actually understanding the world, right? Yeah. Uh, I might apply that backward to the previous chapter actually, <laughs> but uh. But you know, it just really reveals a difference. And this is sometimes the difference between a writer and a reader, right? Like uh on two oh nine he starts talking about The Sims and re- and playing The Sims and beginning to see his friends as people with like need meters. Uh-huh. Um and like that's just, like I totally get the claim being made. I would never in a million years do this. This is so far away from the way that I engage with the world. Like, um and and I you know, in my, my uh meaning you would never life, guess, play the
1: Sims or you would never see your friends as Sims? I would never have friends. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, cut yeah, out the middleman.
0: Yeah. Neither. Yeah. Cut out the middleman. Don't have the. Pro- no. I would just never like take that video game system and apply it to the real world, right? right? Mm-hmm. And like maybe this is why I'm not a successful ARG <laughs> developer, right? Is <laughs> um, like that's just not a, a neither an impulse nor a. Um, it would just never come up. I would Mm -hmm. never even think to do that, right? Right. Like, I'm just so far away from this, right? And that comes up all the time in kind of my, like, free time or whatever, because increasingly within the, like, gardening space, you know what I mean, on the internet, Mm -hmm. the the discursive community where I read a lot of that stuff and watch a lot of YouTube videos and follow a lot of of people, um, you know, it's not a thing I have talked about all that much, but uh, increasingly, like, I did Stardew Valley. I'm doing a Stardew Valley out here. Oof. Uh, that that's like a controlling metaphor now, and it's one that I understand because it brings people in. Yeah, right? you know what I mean. Like it, it's a um, a way of understanding it, but it's like you know the the stakes of that change radically. And if you approach, uh, you know, living creatures, because that is what gardening is is the man is the biological management of living creatures, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you know, when you're ripping plants out or you're putting plants in, there's a whole network. Uh, literally in ecology. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? (laughs) Yeah. Of, of things that you're impacting, right? Like, you know, there's, there's soil life, there's bugs, whatever you could in making the right managerial decision for your garden, create a food desert for an entire species that you have lured to an area that will then die. Like, that's just a thing. There's a weird responsibility that comes with all that. Um, even at the level of like very small life, let alone bigger life. Mm Mm-hmm um and uh, but and so the it, it's interesting to think through the kind of and follow the channels and and the kind of content creators who are in that space of like i'm doing a harvest moon i'm doing a stardew valley because they their content gets gamified a little bit right yeah they they start talking about it they do these massive sweeping changes to their garden space that to me i go oh my gosh like you know uh say goodbye to all all the bumblebees you've been luring for two months right right they're they're dead yeah (laughs) You, you just created a food desert um or or whatever right so um i I, that i was reading this and thinking about that right they're like this is a move i would never make but when when he put it in front of me i go oh oh i see this all the time right i haven't even thought about the kind of implications so i i enjoyed this chapter a lot um even though i think maybe the framework i would apply is a little
1: bit different to it Mm -hmm. uh oh yeah just other other points like talking a lot about uh social media here and like how Mm -hmm. uh 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 the most intensive sentiment is the thing that gets amplified the most right it's it's an outrage machine so on and so forth uh and then yeah ending with the the sims thing uh we also talk about kepler here <laughs> yeah it begins and ends with kepler uh, right because his the whole uh thing the, the point that's being made with kepler is that uh he rethought the metaphor by which uh people understood cosmology right of, of the solar system uh kepler said that it is like a a Piece of machinery, right? Like a watch or something like that. It is uh, running mechanistically, uh, whereas prior to Kepler, uh, a lot of questions and thinking that were happening around like the structure of the solar system and the cosmos were animated, right? That like uh, uh, planets may or may not have intelligences, right? That they there there are ways of historical ways of thinking that consider planets as being like the physical manifestations of angels and things like that. Uh, cool. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's cooler than a rock, right? <laughs> and so, or a gas giant. Right. And so, like, you know, when, when that's going on, right, when you're looking up at the sky and you're seeing these things move around and you're like, yeah, you know, that that might be like... Uh, Uh, the angel of war or something, Uh, the feelings you have about the universe and the things that you even think might be vaguely accomplishable in the universe are going to be very different than if you look up at the sky and you think, okay, this is a big mechanism uh, and things are happening regularly, not because of uh, intelligences and whims, but at the behest of a system uh, where things are happening sort of uh, disconnected from uh, human feelings or or like anthropomorphized, I should say, maybe like anthropomorphized uh, ways of feeling and being in the world. Um, and so right. uh, what games do or like what the, the game metaphor uh, risks doing uh, is kind of rendering all interactions transactional and mechanistic by being like, well, it's just about like uh, points, you know, number going up or number right. going down. And uh, I also
0: like that Han draws n- number going up, number going down into, like, real world. Like, it's not just, like, things that happen to us, mm-hmm. like, random human beings on the planet, but, like, number go up, number go down accounts for Elon Musk's tweeting. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Like, his his affect... Right. Then the way that he expresses his feelings makes money markets go up and down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the we got some quotes here that are basically like, yeah, his only value <laughs> is the fact that he makes money markets go up and down, <laughs> um, which is a fascinating way of kind of rethinking him, you know, as a
1: as a figure. Right. Um. Uh, chapter nine, the Treasury of Merit. Uh, so uh, half of this is about a potential dystopian AR future that we may upend in, or, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, and then I kind of, once I
1: got what was going on here, I was like, alright, fine, whatever. Like, I kind of, like, started skipping a little yeah. bit. Uh, well, then, <laughs> the, I was like, I don't, okay, great. The back half of the chapter is possibly some of the most Michael Lutz shit we've ever encountered in a book. It truly
0: is, <laughs> I really wondered, because we start going back to, like, uh, uh like cre- theo- christian theological imaginaries yes <laughs> of, of like education and self improvement
1: yeah uh like the back half of the chapter then is essentially saying um uh, or it's, it's 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 drawing a comparison right It's sa- it talks about the development of indulgences in the medieval catholic church Um, And the spread of those systems, uh, the various forms that they took, uh, what they like, you know, what they did or rather what they were purported to do, like what was the rhetoric around them that told people here is why we have an indulgence system and here's why you should participate in it. Um, and then how that was eventually, uh, you know, the, the fracture point, uh, within the church more broadly that resulted in the reformation with people, uh, saying like, no, this system of like penalty and reward, uh, that is being maintained by the church is not something that has any power over me. It has no biblical backing, whatever, right? Like, uh, Luther's whole thing. And, uh, uh Han talks about this, right? Is that, uh, Luther ultimately, uh, in uh, instantiates the reformation by saying uh, it is not through your works that you are doing because it is the church who is providing, like, what are, what are your works? What do you do? Uh, which altars do you pray to? Do you go on pilgrimages? Here's your indulgence. You pay me for an indulgence. You get the indulgence. Uh, the works that you do are not important. Luther says it is through faith alone, sola fide, your relationship with Christ, uh, that determines whether or not you are being saved. And so in kind of this one move, he cuts out this entire system of, uh, uh, like, disciplinary control out of the church, right? Or out of his kind of like idea of the church. It's not to say that there's no discipline because who oh boy is there in, in Lutheranism. But, uh, so Han is essentially trying to point out that there are, there is perhaps a historical precedent, um, for systems of uh, discipline and control being uh, disagreed with, uh, fought back against. In fact, one of the things that he says is that, you know, even in the high, you know, the heyday of indulgences in the church, like well before the Reformation starts, there were people who were criticizing the system. Like it was always a point of contention. And this is a good thing to always remember, particularly when you, uh, run into people online who talk about uh, the good old days before the Reformation when the Catholic church was just like whole and it was integrated fully with society and everyone was getting along. And I am here to tell you that like before the Reformation, no one loved yelling more about the church than people who were already in the church. No one was ever getting along 100%. And (laughs) (laughs) this means that things a fracture. They break up. There are uh, schisms. And so Han is saying, uh, in it, uh, contrary to this vision of an AR dystopia, where everything, we like we have an AR headset on at all times and everything we see is being like pointified and gamified, uh, Uh, This could happen and it might not happen because uh, it is possible for systems to press themselves, press themselves so far that people rebel against them and something uh, different or new gets uh, uh, installed.
0: Yeah, the the last two chapters are like basically one chapter, Mm -hmm. right? Like this is the prelude that proves the final chapter, right? And and what's going on there is exactly the last thing you said, or at least that's how I read it, which is like. Han needs to account for the emergence of individuals with an individual willpower, right? Mm -hmm. Within all encompassing and totalizing systems. Right. Because if gamification is surrounding us, surrounding us, if it's the very air that we breathe, then, then therefore, what do we do about it? Right. Um, And he goes to, this is partially why it's such a Michael Lutz ass chapter, right? Is like, it goes back to, the moment in which uh, in Europe in particular, right? The, the liberal subject is being born, right? right? You know, across, uh, across the, the, you know, uh, the continent kind of, yeah. Um, Right. And, but this is also the weird thing about like all the Foucault usage here too, right? Is like the difference between these two perspectives, right? The, the liberal humanist perspective and the kind of Foucaultian anti-humanist discursive, discourse empowery kind of thing mm-hmm. right you know that that disc that the the way we talk the world Im- uh, influences the material of the world which f- goes back into it right there's this kind of self-sustaining system uh, where processes start taking over and commanding what human beings do mm-hmm. the 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 reason Foucault does that is to demonstrate That, in fact, those moments of supposed emergence, you know, of like the radical human will Mm -hmm. are always compromised already. And they're actually just being hijacked by other processes. You know, what's the all through sayer right? History is a process without a subject. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Right. That like there's there's no necessary subject to history. There is, in fact, just the emergence of one uh, due to historical process uh, in material conditions running into one another uh, and so uh you know so that there's a, there's an interesting thing here where we get big, broad systems, big, broad systems, big, broad systems for eight chapters, and then we need to get a proof for like how human will can overwhelm this thing, mm-hmm. and I just don't find that compelling, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, do you I mean, because you are much more in the kind of you know Protestant Reformation interest kind of person, yeah right? like. You know, I, I think that that's an important part of your mm-hmm. uh, perspective on the world yeah. It's like, hey, look at that thing that happened. So I don't know. Maybe we can bridge into the next chapter talking about that. But I take this in a very negative sense. I don't I don't know how you take it. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, I am. uh in agreement in as much as like, yeah, the Protestant Reformation happened, right? Like, <laughs> uh, right, right, right. uh, and I think that, uh, the, uh, dissemination of Protestant doctrines, um, not just Luther's, uh, sola fide, but um, all sorts of other things, those have a huge impact on how people imagine themselves as existing in the world, these subjects, right? So, uh, picking up a mm-hmm. thing that you yeah. said, um, one of the things that happens with sola fide, if all that matters is your personal belief in Christ, right, and his sacrifice, and, and all that stuff right if that's your ticket, right if that's the only ticket you need uh that is part of this uh, emergence of the liberal subject because it individualizes the believer uh, in ways that uh sort of the 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 prior system of just like ritual and structure and hierarchy didn't necessarily right mm-hmm. um, So, uh, in the long or not the long run of history, let's just say in certain forms of history, this is spun as kind of an unequivocal good, right? Like it is good that, uh, the liberal subject emerged. And I'm not saying that like the liberal subject is, uh, not as good as, uh, what we had before. Right. I am just interested in kind of this moment of flux or this moment of change and kind of how everything in a society has to reorient around, um, um, these shifts that happen. Uh, right. There were also bad outputs of uh, the shift to Protestantism, or rather the the emergence of this liberal subject, right? Because uh that is the fundamental uh uh way of thinking that leads us to like uh, uh early modern property law which leads us into how you uh legally justify slavery and not just justify it but like make an industry out of it like a a, a right. ocean spanning industry right all these like little presuppositions that underpin one thing uh get hijacked into other things into uh uh the currents of capital and whatnot so um you know like I think it is good that systems can be overturned, and I also think that uh, we should never settle for the idea that like, because a system got overturned, the thing that comes next is going to be uh, uniformly better or isn't going to have its own kind of uh, uh, negative tendencies that we need to be watchful for.
0: Yeah, history does not tend toward justice or, or liberation, right? <laughs> you know, even remotely, right? I mean, uh, sometimes that happens, but oftentimes it doesn't, right? You know, you need, for example, right? You know, one of the things that's often pointed out uh, is the relationship between exactly as you just said, uh, Protestantism and early capitalism. Did you know it's actually very beneficial for an emerging bourgeoisie to uh, to think? that their destiny in heaven can be impacted by their works on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that actually a predestination is very difficult to enliven within a capitalist economy? Um, Right. Those things might be at odds with one another. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, these things, it's not to say one leads to the other or one is necessary for the other. But as you say, right, like all of these things are, are co evolutionary with one another and they all hijack each other. Right. right? Like uh, the, the, you know, and for me, coming from a very particular kind of perspective right I, th- I think it's mostly process right mm-hmm. like y- humans are overwhelmingly humans are at the receiving end of uh systemic change and not the other way around mm-hmm. uh humans make history, humans do the thing uh but it is not a single heroic individual that does any of this stuff right right it is a uh v- vastly uh inhuman uh manipulation of matter uh that mostly guides the process. Um, which is all to say that we get to chapter 10, escaping soft lock, which, which kind of can't have that story because it won't work because, uh, Han says, look, soft lock is a state where you're kind of stuck. You know, the game isn't broken. We're, you know, for writing a whole chapter about the dangers of metaphorizing games, (laughs) we certainly go there here at the end. I didn't even think about that. I did think about this actually. (laughs) I, I did not think about this until this very moment, but, um, you know, oh, oh, you know, reading reading Han against himself. Ooh, yeah. uh, but no, you know, um, a soft lock is a system uh, is a thing in which you're kind of caught in a stable state. You know, so uh, if you're in a game that has you falling down a pit, this is the example used. You fall down in the pit. There's no way to get out of the pit. Right. Game's not broken. Game's still operating, but you can't do anything. Um, So what are the ways, and that's kind of where Han thinks we are with gamification and the system we live in right now. It's operative, it's sticking around, but there doesn't seem to be a path forward uh, out of the thing. So then therefore, what do we do, Michael?
1: Uh, Well, we... Look at some principles that would lead to ethical gamification, which include uh, users are allowed to opt in. You're not forced into being gamified. It's a, it's a decision that you choose to make as the user. Uh, rewards and punishments, because they're part of the whole thing. Uh, they should be small. You They shouldn't be manipulative, right? Like, oh, you missed your one-day streak, and so now you lose a whole bunch of points. Uh they should not also misrepresent their benefits like those brain training apps. Uh, they should be honest about what it is that they can accomplish. Uh, and they should work on behalf of their users rather than on behalf of the people who are collecting and monetizing the data. Yep. You think that's going to work?
0: <sighs> like, I think all that's right. Yes, uh, to be, right. To be clear, I'm about to say, you know, I'm about to be a little critical here. I think all that's correct. Yes. Like... Uh, in, in but this is also like a very you know in the U.S. we I think I would call it like an Ivy imaginary right mm-hmm. like if only we did liberal democracy better yeah. we would have good liberal democracy right mm-hmm. um you know for from Hans actual literal background I would call it an Ox- an Oxbridge perspective right. right that like if only we did liberal democracy better we would have good liberal democracy like. um, We've just read nine or eight chapters, really, about how gamification and the economic system that it is coterminous with uh, has completely subordinated 20th century imaginaries of democracy and liberalism <laughs> underneath it, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. like in a world where the QAnon chapter in this very book exists, how would you ever generate the, the uh, kind of baseline agreement that would allow us to make good liberal choices right right like liberal in the sense of the the political program not liberal versus conservative right Right. but a capacious set of options that you might choose between right Mm -hmm. like knowledge itself in this very book has already been
1: Mm co-opted by a a
0: monetization system yeah how we we can't go back Mm -hmm. it's not gonna work
1: yeah i mean uh uh touching on what I said earlier and what you said at the beginning, I think one of the I mean, this this book, I think, is good. Like, I agree with it in, in I think, yeah, me too. the largest sense. Um, and I also because of how I come at these things and kind of because of my background, it is also a book that for me uh is constantly circling something uh as i would put it that technology is a, a material instance of ideology and right now our technologies are uh uh all pointed toward uh keeping us in the holding pen of capitalism
0: yes that that is a a wonderful and succinct way of putting it right um yes <laughs> we we live completely beneath capitalist technological forms. Right. Uh that have fully suffused us ideologically. Mm-hmm. It's hard to navigate out, which is exactly the dispossessed quote that the that this chapter opens with. Uh and why the dispossessed, you know, like Le Guin is feeling that already mm-hmm. at the time. And is is writing kind of a warning. We're already we're already through the looking glass, right? Like we're already there. We're not at the warning stage, right? Yeah, that's what I was talking about earlier about just not having a theory of ideology. It doesn't. The book does not have a theory of of why people believe the structure we live in is just. Mm -hmm. It has a theory of how that theory of justice and of economics is done. Right. right? It it is a mechanics and not an ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, I think it really, you know, kind of runs aground here at the end because there, we, we get a, imaginaries of where to go, which I agree with every single one of them. I think that these are right. And like, given the options we have, these are the ones I would go with. Mm-hmm. If I were writing this book, this was probably what I would write. I think I write something roughly similar, not, not a defensive come kind of to liberal humanism, but you know, in terms of like, look, um, we have a very finite set of options available to us. One of them must be the increased capacity for thinking about different alternative ideological positions. Um, and so then therefore maybe games are helpful for doing that. That's where my own book ends, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, so I'm I'm in no way critical here. And if I'm being critical or maybe I am being critical, but if I'm being critical, it's because I'm critical of myself as well. Right? Like um, I, I, there has to be another way of, of getting at the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a some sort of question of agency. Yeah, some sort of agental question. To, to, <laughs> how does this intersect with agency?
1: Michael? Well, uh, so notably, we've talked about agency very little. Uh, I'm not even sure if that word gets used throughout this book. Um, I'm sure it's used maybe like one off, but it's not a it's not a key term. Uh, and no, I would no, say no. one of the reasons for that is that uh, this is a book that is preoccupied, uh, not with like. How, how do people have agency and what do they do with it? Uh, but mainly how people are funneled into doing things. Like, agency almost doesn't even matter, right? Like, how does the structure of a person's life and the technologies they have around them and the way that they interact with the world, how is that funneling them into uh, behaviors and situations uh, that they don't really have a choice about? And, like, the you know agency doesn't come up because all of this stuff is just sort of dehumanizing us.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, th- I think ultimately th- this last chapter is not written for us. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, even for that question of agency, right. Because that is such a, as we've discovered a wishy washy word, right? Like, um, both of the previous books that we have read kind of dodged the, uh, what is agency question for like, how do we experience and see that? Right. Bodhi has a stronger answer to it than uh, Nguyen. Right. Uh, But uh, both, both actively are like, look, uh, you know, it's, we see the thing, Mm -hmm. Um, you, you know, you know it when you see it. It's not written for us. It literally has sections on like advice for business owners and advice for governments and civil society. Right. Like, uh, and, you know, th- that also signs an ideology of the investment in civil society uh, as a particular kind of key term here. But um, so like this is really like eight chapters of warning, a chapter about how we can actually do something different. And then some pragmatic claims that policymakers can take and go do something better than what we have. Right. Mm-hmm. It is not written for us to have like, uh, you know, theoretical arguments with right? right i mean i, I do get a sense that adrian hahn is probably interested in those but this no, is not a book to appease the like philosophically minded person mm-hmm. uh, because it's actually trying to do something in the world unlike you know uh the philosophically minded
1: right this this uh, is a book that i think is like uh for like your cousin or someone you know it's like oh you like video games and you're like your cousin who's kind of like flirting with getting into cryptocurrency or something right, right. It,
0: or your cousin or your congressperson right, right. like it's it's to give someone who doesn't know much about this or, or only knows the positive version uh, to give them, you know, the appropriate dose of haterade and mm-hmm. then to tell them what to do about it, right. which is like, who could be mad, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, I, I think the book is good. I think the book would teach really well. Yes. Um. You know, the next time I'm teaching a game studies course right now. Uh, I don't have really time to add this in. I wish I'd read this, you know, two months ago. Um. But in the future, I think I would teach the whole book. If, and if not the whole book, then the big pieces of it. But... Um, the part that really rankled me, you know, in terms of the policy um, requirements here, right, is the, again, kind of implicit libertarianism in part of it, and I, I don't think that, I don't get a sense that Han is of that perspective, and maybe this is just like good classical liberalism, and I, you know, in the way that that gets firehosed to you is just different these days, right, mm-hmm. but this is toward the end of the policy engagement. It's on 239 for me. Uh, To support these goals, we need more and better academic research. Recent studies into lifestyle and workplace gamification often seem to be more about helping the industry prove a marginal level of efficacy rather than investigating the short and long-term effects of gamification on students and citizens and workers. Finally, this is the part I actually care about. Finally, we need a reinvigorated, more responsible, more responsive, more transparent democracy in order to restore citizens' trust, not simply in institutions and governments, but in the idea of reality itself. This is where gamification can help. Delving into ARG style rabbit holes of misinformation and conspiracy theories is just too fun and fulfilling. Pulling people away from these damaging places will require new resources and tools that make it easier and more satisfying to discover and contribute information about the real world. Tools as polished and intuitive as the best video games, even if they can't be fun. We also need new deliberative platforms that use gamification not to amplify anger and discord but to help people reach consensus as Taiwan's platform is done. In a reversal from current trends, this might involve building friction in the platform so that tempers can cool and debaters are given time to consider their opinions. I think this is pure fantasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is the chapter. This is literally the paragraph where I was like, Ooh, uh, "Okay, um, like, there's no going back." Right. Like the the genie has been out of the bottle, and the genie's not out of the bottle uh, since 2016 the genie's been out of the bottle for 150 years. Mm-hmm. Um it it has been uh out of the bottle since like small press printers were a relatively affordable option. Um the the I, here's the flip side. You know, here's a different perspective on this. Uh there was a production of consensus reality that that occurred with the uh, invention of television in the United States and, na- and national newspapers in uh-huh. the United States and their explosion of that at the beginning of the 20th century that has been unrivaled, you know, in the the, the American and European context. Um, and that has just simply gone away.
1: Mm-hmm. It like, went from unrivaled uh, to unraveled.
0: Wow! That's the name of our book, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, this, the, you know, like... I don't know. It's hard to look at the history of, like, popes and anti-popes and be like, oh, yeah, we all had a consensus reality up until 20, you know, 2008, right, where things just
1: went haywire. I mean, Same, right? Like, looking at (laughs) the history of the Reformation and, like, once that door opens, oh, boy, do you got a lot of different types of Protestants.
0: Right, right. And so, you know, I I get as a policy position why you would say this, right? Like, because, sure, we actually do need – I think this is a good idea – Maybe we do need a government that seems to care about this, right? Maybe we do, in fact, need people who are trying to think of ways to uh, either uh, legislate or regulate, maybe both, um, companies that seem uh, only invested in radically destroying our society, Mm -hmm. right? Like whatever society we have, right? Um, But also... uh, I think that they are pulling on, you know, th- this is something that you're very familiar with too. It's a big part of your field, right? That the reason that medievalisms, post medievalisms, uh, uh, early modern studies, right? The reason that that has become so prominent in academia and even beyond over the past, say, 15, 20 years is that we are returning to. Or re- returning is the wrong word, right? We are reconstructing a similar set of knowledge that seemed to be very operative during that time period, mm-hmm. which is lots of contradictory claims from lots of different ideological positions that are actively warring with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, in England, in in, in Europe, uh, which is part of the tradition that we've been handed, right? It's, yeah. do, it's not exhaust the American tradition, certainly, right? But it's a big part of it. Um, and is certainly part of the... Um, Dominant, hegemonic, in power, you know, organization that exists there Um, that that this we're we are entering a system and we're part of a system. It just kind of looks like another thing that happened at one point. Yeah. Um, It just doesn't happen to look like the past hundred years. Mm hmm. Um, And so, you know, I don't know. I take, uh, you know, kind of a long view on this, right, where it's like, I think that everything that Han is saying is right. And I think these are all good policy positions. And given what we have versus what we could have, I want this thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm also maybe negative on on uh, the applicability here, because we can't just roll back the clock to 1950. Uh, And honestly, for lots of people, they don't want to roll back the clock to 1950. (laughs) There were drawbacks right? like, to
1: 1950, let's just right. say.
0: <laughs> yeah, like it turns out, and you know, Han is, is uh, you know, uh, someone living and educated in the UK, has a very different relationship, lives in Edinburgh, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has a very different, yeah. yeah, different relation, relationship to this, you know, than, than we do. But when we start talking about the moment where there was the broadest national consensus on issues that really truly mattered, right, that, that were supposedly good for the most people, um, That looks bad. That looks like the, uh, in the United States, it looks like the wealth disparity explosion that happens in the 1940s, late 1940s and early 1950s Um, that that only exists because of a very explicit racial hierarchy, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's the the thing that makes that go is that you, uh, uh, through racial hierarchization, preclude a big chunk of people of getting access to it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's inequality is the thing that makes it work uh, as a mechanism. So like there's that maybe on one side, I'm thinking of other moments of broad national consensus, like say, I don't know the 1980 election. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems real bad. That was a bad consensus, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all had a uh, consensus reality and it was, it was that Ronald Reagan was going to save the world. <laughs> that's, that's no good. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, there's these, um, benefits and drawbacks to it. And, um, I I and I don't even think that gamif I don't think gamification and the problems that are here actually get eliminated under consensus reality, right? I think they might only become um, increased. Hmm. I think Class Dojo is that vision yeah. in some ways. Mm. Mm. Um, I think we're more likely to get somehow Class Dojo, uh, uh, you know, gets a federal contract. Oh, That's Jesus. more likely to me.
1: Right? Uh-huh. Like is that
0: not more reasonable to you, right? We've given
1: than... okay, we've invented bus dojo, and so when the bus driver thinks that you're doing something bad, they can play a sound effect to make you scared. Right, right. But then you can so play a anyway. sound effect uh uh back at the bus driver who's actually just a contractor, uh, <laughs> and and their score goes down to like what, uh four point nine stars, and then if they don't get it back up, they'll be fired. Right.
0: Right. Um Waiting on Steven Salato's... uh essay about that (laughs) his essay about driving a bus is great it's one of the best things i've ever read uh i don't know if you read that but uh oh it's worth worth tracking down uh but uh anyway like i said this is the haters book (laughs) and uh there's nothing more appropriate to take than the haters book than the haters reading practice of the the policy suggestions at the end (laughs) but uh i think ultimately you know the I think the sign of a good book is lots of uh, thoughts about that book. And sometimes those thoughts are in agreement. Sometimes those thoughts are uh, really negative. Um, And uh, I had, you know, I think that I'm in broad agreement with nearly all of this book. Mm -hmm. And it's just when we get kind of down to brass tacks and about, well, what, what is to be done Mm -hmm. um, that maybe I have some strong disagreements that, that have to do with the construction of the book and the kind of, way its thinking is presented to us but if you were there is no better i think uh current like truly really and truly there is no better analysis and takedown of the modes of governance we live within and their attachment to gamification than this book Mm -hmm. i just simply believe that uh perhaps restoring faith in the government is not a you know it, that's that's going to be a hard sell for people yeah. we might have
1: to do a couple other things before we get there i think
0: right it's really funny you know i i talk uh, i've talked several times about like the the uses of science fiction that mm-hmm. they're you know that science fiction's like the it is the uh, the porthole out of ideology right like we'll just use a, a, a utopia and we'll get out of everything and it's very funny that that's the dispossessed is used here mm-hmm. like it's just this escape hatch for reality Huh. I like the the last line. If life is to be a game, let it be one of learning and joy, not of grind and punishment. Yeah. <laughs> Seems good. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm all about it. Hey, if you like this episode and you think this is interesting, you should listen to our, our episode on Ronciers, the ignorant schoolmaster. Oh, yeah,
1: definitely. Actually. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I think that that it, you know basically uh you, every criticism I'm making in this book you can just hear me talk about at length in that book. So.
1: Well, yeah. We did it. Yeah, we did it. Uh, we read this book and uh do we want to do a Patreon plug?
0: Let's do a Patreon plan. Yeah.
1: So if you liked what you just heard, if you've listened to Game Study Study Buddies for a while or any of our other shows, you should probably, maybe, actually, you know, you, you should. You absolutely should. I won't give you a streak for it. I won't give you uh, badges or points or anything, but you should go to patreon.com slash range touch and you should kick us a couple dollars uh, every month because that helps us uh, set aside time to buy these books, to read them, to make our notes on them, and then to talk about them for hours at a time. Uh, and when you do that, when you support us on Patreon, uh, you'll get access to uh, a whole bunch of bonus stuff. Uh, for this show in particular, you can get access to our archive of notes that Cameron and I have taken for almost every episode up until this point. Um, So mm-hmm. things that we didn't talk about as much or, uh, uh you know, things that... Uh, we don't really want to talk about on a podcast because uh, in my notes a lot, I will start yelling about Shakespeare and early modern theater. And I try to limit how much I actually do that on air. Uh, But you can check those out if you want to. And then there's all sorts of other bonus content. If you uh, give us more money, uh, bonus episodes for just King things uh, the podcast feed for our soon to be completed series about the fallout franchise too much future. Uh, and shell by Genre bonus episodes, the shell by Genre show uh, that we are doing with Austin Walker. Where we're reading Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun currently. Uh, so those are all the things that we do here at Range Touch, and you should uh, check them out. And I think if you liked this episode that you just heard, you will probably like something else that we we did. Uh, other things we should add, Cameron? I think that's it. I think that's it. Okay. Well, then join us next month when we will be reading "Narrative as Virtual Reality: Immersion and in Interactivity in Literature and Electronic Media" by Marie-Laure Ryan. Is that how you say Marie-Laure? I don't know. I've never heard it. I don't know either. I, I've only ever read her name. Same.
0: <laughs> and when people when people reference it, it's just Ryan. Right. Yeah. You know, like Ryan and Rifkin, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So I, I truly don't know. Someone let us know.
1: Yeah. Like, let me know no, if I'm Laurie, wrong. Laurie? Laurie I don't know. yeah. I mean, is this, I, actually, is she, I don't oh, know. And Swiss. I actually kind of
0: tried to look it up. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh,
0: yes, yeah, so we're going to check that out. We're going to take a little bit of a swing out to like a broader theorization, which is like, hey, what's narrative have to do with this whole agency thing? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, anyway. Well, we will be back in one month with that. Thanks so much. Uh, hit the five star button on Apple Podcasts, If you're listening to it there, uh, we only spread by word of mouth. So tell a friend about
1: the show. If you think they might enjoy it and we'll be back in one month. Remember until next time, the social is predicated on its exclusions.